showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Father, we want to be alone. Please. You like me just a little bit? Your general appearance is not distasteful. Thank you. The whites of your eyes are clear. Your cornea is excellent. Your cornea is terrific. Love isn't so simple, Ninochka. Ninochka, why do doves bill and coo? Why do snails, the coldest of all creatures, circle interminably around each other. Why do moths fly hundreds of miles to find their mates? Why do flowers slowly open their petals? Only oh, Ninochka, surely you feel some slight symptom of the divine passion. A general warmth in the palms of your hands. A strange heaviness in your limbs. A burning of the lips that isn't thirst, but something a thousand times more tantalizing, more exalting than thirst. You're very talkative. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Otto Bruno. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Hey, Robert. Also back in the booth is Mr. Robert Baldissimo. Hello, comrades. On this episode, we are looking at Ernst Lubitsch's 1939 film Ninochka, written by Charles Brackett, Billy Wilder, Walter Reich, and based loosely on a story by Melchior Lengel. The film stars Greta Garbo as the titular Ninochka, a stern Soviet sent to Paris to supervise the sale of jewels seized from a Russian noblewoman, Grand Duchess Swana. It's a bit of a Pygmalion story as Ninochka learns to embrace the decadent ways of the West. We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, turn off the show and come back after you've watched it. We will still be here. So, Otto, when was the first time you saw Ninochka, and what did you think, sir? Well, you know, I was thinking about that today because as a longtime listener of the projection booth, I know that you always ask that question first. I'm pretty positive that I came the Lubitsch through Wilder because I was a big, and still am, a big Billy Wilder fan. 
And the first Wilder biography I read was a got by a guy named Maurice Zolito or Zolito. And I remember Wilder praising Lubitsch and made and it made me feel like, oh, I gotta see some of this guy's film. And I can't remember if the first film I saw was it was either Ninochka or to be or not to be. But I loved it. The first time I saw it, I think I've seen it now probably a dozen times or more. I think I think it's a really it's one of those great films because it should not really hold up today in in some ways when you think about the screenplay, but like all great films, the more things have changed, the more this film somehow still seems to hold up and is still uh, funny and trenchant and and it's got that trademark wittiness that you don't know if it really comes from Brackett or Wilder, or you don't know if it comes from Lubitsch, or in this case, you don't know if it comes from Walter Wright, but you certainly know it when you hear it. And personally, I love it when I hear it. So I love this film. And Robert, how about yourself? This was a first viewing for me. So I watched it about a week and a half ago, and then I watched it again last night. And in general, I'm very new with with Lubish. So I've I had only seen Shop Around the Corner and a couple of others before. But it's been such a treat just going through his filmography because he is such a good filmmaker and the writing is just brilliant. And it's they're so thought provoking at the same time, particularly this one. So when I first saw this, I I really enjoyed it, and it really, at the same time, left me, in a good way, perplexed. Because I thought, well, what is he really getting at here? Are we? Is this a total embrace of capitalism and 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 a satire against communism, or is it about a satire making fun of both sides of these political views, or you know, with a love story at the center of it? What are we getting at here? And I found myself the other night after watching it again not even being able to sleep because I was just wrestling with all of these themes. And sometimes when, I, when I've when i been watching Lube, these Lubish films, he hits on so many different tones, like in to be, or, to, to be or Not To Be, for example. And I think, how can this work? But yet he makes it work. And that's just brilliance of his writing and, and that he's working, particularly this one. And he's so daring and so smart and so emotional and powerful at the same time. I just loved it. I thought the performances were great. I thought the, I really think it's an underrated, never even heard of it before I looked at your lit, list last year, Mike, that you and something attracted me to it. Never even heard of it. So hopefully more people are going to be talking about this film because I think like Otto said, I think it holds up well. Was it really ironic that you guys were just on the rules of the game episode Another film from 1939 and another film that required a title card to go up before it to say, hey, things have changed since we shot this film. We have been plunged into World War. And this one, you know, was put on the title card right before release, as opposed to with Rules of the Game. They put it on several years later when the film was being restored and hey, this has nothing to do with World War II, wink, wink, kind of a thing. And this one, they're very much, hey, this was before World War II broke out, so we can set this movie in 
Paris, we can talk about the Russians and Germans not getting along. There's a very pointed moment in here about that. So, yeah, it's it's really kind of neat that we're talking about this other 39 film. Also, a comedy. You know, I think Rules of the Game is a little bit more serious, but has definite comedic moments. But this one, it's neat because it's not a screwball comedy. I would say it's more of a comedy of manners. And it's really got characters that I don't think that I would like them in another circumstance, especially the Melvin Douglas character, where he's this kept man and he's talking with the Duchess Swana at the beginning about this, what is it, a diamond platinum watch with diamond numbers on it. And he's just like basically her lapdog. And did I do a good enough job that I get to have this thing? Why didn't you come last night? Darling, I was looking after your interests. Oh, did you win? We can forget horse racing, roulette, and everything. Our worries are over. You remember the platinum watch with the diamond numbers? You'll be in a position to give it to me now. Oh, darling, you're so good to me. We can be rich if you say the word. I had dinner with the Guizots last night. Oh, those awful newspaper people. You'd be surprised how many nice people dine with the Guizots. What a gruesome proof of the power of the press. Oh, listen, Swan. I sold Mr. Guizot the idea of publishing your memoirs in the Gazette Parisienne. What? The Life and Loves of the Grand Duchess Swana of Russia. Oh, Leon. But, darling, we won't have to worry about our future if you're willing to raffle off your past. He's not somebody that I would find appealing, but he very quickly becomes a compelling person in this. And same thing with Ninochka. It takes us a while for her to show up in the story, but when she does, so cold, but so hilarious. Just the, the dourness that Greta Garbo presents. And I think this might be one of the few Greta Garbo movies I've seen. I know I saw Queen Christine, but I don't think I've seen too many other Garbo films. You're right about the Malvin Douglas character. He really is a sleazeball when we are first introduced to him. He, throughout the course of the film, you know, as you described, Garbo coming onto the scene as this very uh, dour, humorless cog in the machine of society, as she says. He has to, he actually changes her and breaks her shell ultimately through laughter. But she changes him because he su- he surprises himself by actually falling in love with a woman, as opposed to just using a woman for whatever he can get out of her. And that's kind of the interesting aspect of his transformation, is that he kind of, his business, I mean, he was a gigolo, so his business was love and getting women to fall in love with him and support him, and yet he's changed as a person when, lo and behold, he actually falls in love with a woman who wanted nothing to do with him when she first meets him. So that I thought that was pretty funny. I totally agree with that, which I found so fascinating when those changes come, because they seem to both change in that exact same scene in the diner where he falls off his chair. And that's when we begin to see her laughing. And and first time, you know, Garbo laughs. The first time we see her crack a smile is in that scene when she when she cracks up. And there's a huge change from him because he's such a con man and, and a performer and confident with the ladies and expecting 
that his charms and his wit and his, you know, bourgeois status is going to win people over. And it does not work on this woman. And, and, and the falling on his ass, it's interesting that he also starts to laugh because I, and I, I wondered, I wonder, you know, I think it's open to interpretation. I thought, here's this guy who, who seems to only take pleasure in getting his, what he wants from his performances. And here he is where he get everyone laughs at him when he is not playing the characters he plays in life. And I thought the fact that he laughs and she's laughing is so interesting because now she's falling for him. She's beginning to see some good things about the West and capitalism. And he is now starting to let go of all those characters he plays. And then we start to see that great scene with the butler right after where, you know, he finds the Karl Marx book (laughs) in his uh, diner. So I was fascinated by that just in terms of how their relationship developed. And of course, how that also played into them seeing their own politics in a different light as well. So there's just so much to this film. I mean, you could just talk about it endlessly. But that's that was the major scene for me was that diner scene. I don't know, I don't know if, if that's where you guys found that was a huge turning point. Between that and the champagne, which really loosens her as well. And I'm trying to remember where the revelation that she bought that hat comes in because that's a major thing because that's such a mark of Western decadence, this ridiculous hat. And I like how hats signal that the three Soviet emissaries are changing because they're wearing those very, you know, Soviet style hats. And then next thing you know, they're wearing top hats and bowlers. But going back to that whole thing of Melvin Douglas's seduction of Ninochka, it is so important that he doesn't know who she is and that he hasn't found out that the extra emissary that is being sent along is a woman, has no idea that it's her, and that he just hears her talking and he's like, oh, I love Russians, and just kind of goes from there. And then she becomes that challenge to him to make her laugh, to break that facade, but not aggressive. It's not like this is some sort of, he's not some sort of pickup artist, like he doesn't start nagging her or anything. (laughs) You know, he's not, he's a sleazeball, but he's not that big of a sleazeball. And then, like you said, he changes just as fast as she changes. And yeah, that he's reading Marx all of a sudden and then starts talking to his butler, like, don't you ever, you know, get sick of this? And (laughs) he is smitten initially by her total indifference to him. And she plays it so well, just that dourness. And and I also love that she is making great points, too, when she comes in and sees her comrades and they're in this luxurious royal suite. And she starts talking about, you know, how much does this cost a day? And well, at first she says a week and they're like, no, a day, 2000 francs a day. And she's like, a cow costs 2,000 francs. If I stay here for a week, that's seven cows, you know, just to relate that into regular terms. And then you think about that, like for you and me and, and, and Otto for just like, well, gosh, I couldn't stay someplace that costs that much. And to look around at these rooms and just see how luxurious they are. And plus they get two rooms because she gets the Royal suite and then they get put into another room or they take another room to give the comrade her own space. And because they, uh, of course, take that big room because it's the only place that has a safe big enough for all of those jewels. And that whole thing, too, of the jewels 
being seized by Russia. And really, the Countess, she really has dibs on those jewels. Those are her jewels passed down to her from her mother, from her grandmother. But by the end of the film, you're just like, no, no, those belong to the Soviet people. But they were paid for by the blood of the people. It's, I would disagree a little bit. And maybe, Mike, maybe you agree with Robert. But I disagree. I don't believe that this film comes down on the side of capitalism. In no, fact, no. what I love about this film is that is that balance in terms of all this, because there is more than enough satire and criticism to go around for communism, capitalism, and the aristocracy in this film. And all of them get punctured in this script at some point or another. I mean, when she's when they meet her at the train station and they ask her how are things in Moscow, and she says, The last mass trials were a great success. There are going to be fewer but better Russians. That's an amazing laugh line that's not funny at all. I mean, you're talking about killing people, and it is a, it's a laugh line. So, I mean, that's attacking, you know, that whole Bolshevik idea of the revolution. But the the my favorite puncture at capitalists is when you have the middleman jeweler in looking at the jewels and he yeah he's lowballing them on what he's willing to give them and he says something like um uh i'm gonna lose money on it myself and the white says capitalistic methods they accumulate millions while taking loss after loss he literally is the exact same as you know, what we're told about what is the thing that um, the Duchess makes some bitchy remark to Greta Garbo in the restaurant when she, the, is that what they're wearing in Moscow this year? And Garbo says, no, last year. And she says, before the revolution, we wouldn't have been able to wear an off-the-shoulder gown because we had to cover up the lash marks, commissars. And the lady says, yes, we, I don't know why we ever let them use those lashes when their guns were so much more effective. Yeah, that was great. I think the great thing about this film is that every side is attacked. And I, that's why the film is so palatable in a way is because it's not and it's not, you know, it's not heavy handed because you're not falling on one side. It's not propaganda for any one group you're attacking all the groups and of course then there's that the other great line in the restaurant when melvin douglas says to her just laugh uh, laugh at what she says well it just said the absurdity of all of us so, you know we take ourselves too seriously which again can go for all of these groups for me personally, I thought of how it, how perfectly that went with Greta Garbo because I'm not a huge Greta Garbo, <laughs> um, and I think everyone takes Greta Garbo a little too seriously. I never saw the big appeal, but that's just me. But yeah, that's what I, I love the balance of this film. I hope I didn't give the impression that that I <laughs> that I felt it was falling more uh, for capitalism. But I think that is well. This is interesting because. Clearly, at the time, people thought that, and I wondered why they thought that. And I was really thinking about this, and that article I sent both of you guys, 
Uh, apparently, this this in Italy in the late forties, this they use the the Demo- the social the Christian Democrats use this film as a tool to win an election and beat the communists, and it was banned in Russia. And the tagline was, I don't know if they promoted it this way, but the guy who came up with the story pitched it to Greta Garbo by saying, you know, communist goes to France and finds that capitalism is not so bad, right? So I thought, okay. And I thought, well, what? Because it was clear to me that it was pretty valid in terms of making fun of communism and capitalism. But I think with when it's when it's hitting at at capitalism, it it was it was not that it was more sophisticated or or more nuanced or subtle than it was when it was hitting uh, against communism. But I think with when it was hitting against communism, it popped out much more, mainly because of the three Russian guys, because they were embracing it so much. They loved France. They the three maids, the French maids. With the close every time I was dying when they closed the door and the one woman comes in and you hear them like cheering. And then when then she leaves, comes back with three more, and then the cheers are even louder. I was howling. That was much more obvious. Whereas you don't see anyone from France going to Russia later and saying, Oh my god, this is amazing that they, they have to uh, share rooms and share food and rations, right? No one does that. So I don't know if that if that was your to me it just it's not that he hits you over the head with anything but it just popped out more so I can see why maybe people think this was hitting more for capitalism and against communism I don't know what you guys thought even though it's not but well it's interesting because at this time 1939 before the Soviets and Germans sign a pact of I think it was a non-aggression pact. Obviously, Germany is going to turn on them and, and, you know, invade them later on, much to their mistake. But this is pre-Red Scare. You know, we, this is, what are we, 22 years after the revolution has taken place, where, yeah, there's a lot of fear of the Soviet Union. There's a lot of sympathy for the Soviet Union. There's a lot of people, and I'm talking especially in Hollywood, that were very pro-Soviet, pro-communist, and just really thought that that was the way to go. And I'm not saying that that's wrong or anything, but this is pre-McCarthyism. This is pre-Hollywood 10, all of these kind of things. So this point in history, it's not okay to like the Soviet Union necessarily, but it's definitely much more embraced than it would be even five years, seven years, 10 years after this, this is obviously pre-Malta, pre, you know, Stalin sitting down with Churchill and, and FDR. And we already know that Stalin isn't the best guy in the world, but we, I don't think we know the horrors of Stalinism as much as we would later on and find out a lot more about that. But yeah, it was, it was interesting that we could have jokes about Russians. You know, this is, this is way before, you know, my father was a communist type of propaganda movies from the United States where we're just like, oh my God, you know, it's invasion of the body snatchers. They're going to come in and take our freedoms and we're all going to be automatons kind of thing. Like here, the Russians have a sense of humor. Those three Russian delegates are amazing. Oh my God, they're so funny. And they were all regulars of 
Lubitsch, and then they became regulars of Wilder as well. I mean, especially uh, Felix Bressart, who plays probably the most prominent of the three guys. He's so good. I love him so much. Bressart is this is the guy who, in this film, I think of the three, he is sort of the most poignant and. Of course, he's he's he plays that part in the shop around the corner. Oh my God, you love him in that film? No, Bressard is one of my all time is one of my all time favorites. But yeah, the interesting thing though, Robert made a great point about those three guys, which I I didn't really think about. But the fact is that those three guys embrace the decadence. She never embraces the decadence, but she will give them in to the point that. Oh, maybe there is a play. Maybe there is a reason to maybe loosen up a little bit, you know, once she falls in love with Leon and all that. But she, even when she goes back to Russia, she is still sort of, for lack of a better term, towing the poverty line. <laughs> tells her roommate, Oh, you missed a great parade and all this stuff. And she tells them, Oh, don't, you know, don't say that or don't say this. We're still, you know. She called the parade inspirational. Right. Exactly. So, she, that's what I found so interesting. She never quite gives over the way, as you say, Robert, the three of those guys. It, all I can think of is that they embraced the decadence. They loved the decadence of it all. And that was what was different between them and the Nochka herself. So in that sense, that's really an excellent point, too, is that you're right. At this point in time, we weren't really... We weren't really saying too many negative things about the communists in Hollywood films. So now I am kind of fascinated that this got through. <laughs> By the way, I looked it up today that the non-aggression pact between Germany and Russia was signed in late August of 1939. And Germany invades Poland on September 1st. So literally like a week after we signed that with Russia... They invaded Poland, and then it would be what less than a year before they before they go to war against Russia, I think. Um, and then, yes, throughout the war years, we can't say anything negative on film about the Russians or the Chinese because we're they're both our allies. Well, and it took a long time for us to say anything bad about Germans. There was a lot of you know, I think. You know, another Lubitsch film that we talked about on the show a few years ago, To Be or Not To Be, he's one of the first people that is openly saying, the Germans are not good people, guys. And that was so daring. Yeah. Before that, it was very much like, do not say anything about these Germans, which was wild. Because the European markets meant so much to them financially. One of the things I read uh, this week was saying that, that Garbo herself did not really bring in that much money in ticket sales in America, but she did in Europe. So those foreign sales, that yeah, that's the reason they were so That's why they, they dragged their feet with saying anything against the Nazis until like 1939. I think it's the first time uh, Warner Brothers comes out with the film Confessions of a Nazi Spy with Edward G. Robinson. But the first real attack, believe it or not, on Hitler comes from the three stooges. I believe it. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Chaplin, but it's not Chaplin. The three stooges did parody of Hitler right before Chaplin thing came out. 
few months before, theirs was obviously a Columbia short. It wasn't a feature, but yeah, that's really a great point that this, now that I think about it, that they, they kind of criticized Russia as much as they did in this picture. And of course, uh, the, the not so funny thing is that all these screenwriters and directors and everybody were kind of told by the studios to make these pro-Russian and pro-Chinese films during the war. And then these are the exact same people who are then called up in front of for saying, oh, you were spreading this communist propaganda. What a 360. Unbelievable. Sorry, 180, actually. I always get those. (laughs) I mean, imagine just two years prior to this, there was a film with Claudette Colbert and Charles Boyer Tovarich, which is obviously comrade or friend in Russian, based on a play, and Lidvak was the director. I mean, we were fine with Russia at this time. We were just, oh yeah, sure, we'll make this comedy about Russia, and we'll make this comedy about this Russian lady, Ninochka. And you've got Lubitsch and Wilder, and I'm not sure about Brackett or anybody else, but at least those two have fleed from Nazi Germany. They saw the writing on the wall, and so many of these... Walter Reich did as well. And they all see the handwriting on the wall, and they're just like, we have to get the heck out of here. And then, you know, there's that nice little jab against Germany in here when they're trying to find this new comrade who's coming to join them. And they're waiting there on the train platform, and they think, oh, it's this guy. And he walks up to somebody and says, Heil Hitler. And they're like, oh, no, not him. Russard says, definitely not. <laughs> that was really, even the way he said, he's like, that's not him. But that earlier point you, you both brought up, which I thought when I was watching this, I thought, oh, my God, this is why this film is still holds up so well. When the middleman was negotiating the, the purchase of the jewels, and he talks about, well, we have to make all these losses. We're gonna, it's just gonna be a loss for us. <laughs> and the other guys say, like, you know, again, talking about capitalist methods, methods they, you know, accumulate wealth by by having all these losses. And right now, even in, you know, with inflation the way it is, and and in the grocery store chains making, you know, billions, even here in Canada, they the government question the CEOs of a number of these grocery chains. And that is exactly what they went through their spreadsheet of their quote unquote losses. We spent this, we spent that, this cost this much more, this cost, they went and then they're like, well, look at how much money we're spending. And and one of the politicians was like, well, how much profit is too much profit? Like your profit margins are, you can't say that you're, you're losing when your profits are, are like millions more. <laughs> But that's what they do. And so I thought, wow, he really got to the core of that method in that. And he makes it so funny at the same time, which is the genius of the humor, because they're not just comedic bits. They say so much about what the people are thinking and what their personality is, even down to the porter when she gets off the train and she's why, why does the porter, why does this guy have to take my bag? Well, that's his job. And she's like, well, this is a social injustice. And then he says, well, it depends on the tip. And I thought, you know, here's this guy who had, you know, maybe five, six lines in that that whole exchange. And yet we see so much about who he is that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't care about, at least from what we see of him anyways, he's not, you know, political or thinking about, you know, injustices. He's just here to make a good payday. So, what you know, in other words, look, like, 
I'm just here for a for a tip, like <laughs> which I thought was showed the um, you know, perhaps you could interpret it as as people people accepting so little and not being not realizing that they're perhaps being ripped off, which we certainly see with the butler later, because that was much, you know, much clearer, of course, when when he's like you know, this is when we see Leon start to change. And he's like, well, don't you think it's unfair that you, you know, have to wait on me and be my buddy and all this kind of stuff. And then he's like, well, sir, you know, I, I know you haven't paid me in two months, but the thought of splitting half my bank account just would make me puke or something. And I just thought, you know, again, just the, the lies that people are fed and they begin to believe that they're not worthy of anything more, even though they're working full time or or what have you. And we see that all the time. I mean, people, you know, just unfortunately believe are misguided, right? So I thought he just in even those little supporting route, everybody said so much about who what they believed in the smallest of parts, which was again, the writing is just brilliant. I love when she first meets the butler and she says, Is this what you call the butler? Yes. Good evening, comrade. This man is very old. You shouldn't make him work. He takes good care of that. He looks sad. Do you whip him? No, but the mere thought makes my mouth water. The day will come when you'll be free. Go to bed, little father. We want to be alone. This is a kind of film where I want to write down all the lines. Like, particularly if you're going to review it, I'm like, I want to mention this. I want to mention that. But then I'm like, well, then I'm just going to be doing lines. But all the films I watched of Bluebish, all of them, I was like, these you know, these lines are just so smart. And again, it, they're not just punchlines. You you do have to, for a second, think about the joke. And then it's that, oh, I see what he's getting at. I mean, sometimes they're obvious. But the ways in which he invites the audience to read between the lines and think about the film a little more is really, it's, I mean, that doesn't exist anymore. can't think of anyone who even touches that now. It's really intelligent and witty and you have to be first of all i think in order to write like that you have to be really well read and find that these guys were were well read and were growing up in a world where if you were lucky enough to get an education it was a classical education so you study in the romans and the philosophy and all this stuff I mean, these these were really, yeah. You're never going to get this kind of writing again. It's it, which and it's a shame. But you see so much of this then later on in a lot of the Wilder films that these kind of lines and and humor that come up. I mean, even the joke that Leon tells finally: a man comes into a restaurant. He sits down at the table. And he says, "Waiter, bring me a cup of coffee without cream." Five minutes later, the waiter comes back and says, I'm sorry, sir, we have no cream. Can it be without milk? (laughs) (laughs) So you don't think that's funny? No. It seemed funny to me when I first heard it. Maybe the trouble isn't with the joke. Maybe it's with you. I don't think so. I had to look it up. You know, I was like, I was like, well, what does that mean? And I, I know that. We, I share that, or I do just a shout out to Aaron Schuster or Schuster, who wrote this great review of this film, and he explains it. And people have different interpretations about it, about what that joke means. So I don't know what you guys thought it, but I, I had a, I had a sort of 
somewhat of a variation on it, but it's not like a cut and dry joke. I interpreted it as being that even that was kind of a joke on the different stratospheres of wealth and money. You know, well, we can't bring it to you without cream, but how about without milk? It's like, it's always like rich guy going in saying, can I have something without cream? It's always like that guy in the joke was kind of like Leon in this restaurant where he was not a working man. He was a wealthy guy. He's pretending to be like, oh, this is where I come all the time although he's never been there. And he would go into a place like this and ask with or without creed, but they would never have creed because they thought it's a working man's place. It's too expensive. So it was all right if we bring it without milk. I mean, you know, and, and, you, and I took that also, I assumed that that was why it was so funny because all the working men behind them laugh at it. No. It's interesting, you know, Wilder said somewhere, which I think I have the exact quote somewhere about how Rubich, oh, by the way, I don't know if you guys saw this in the readings, but all three of these guys, Brackett, Wilder, and Wright, wanted Lubitsch's name on the film. He, they wanted him credited as a writer. And the studio and the Writers Guild, which was just starting at that point, would not allow it. But that... But think about what that means if you have the three writers who are saying, oh, the director really deserves credit on this, too. Oh, yeah. When usually it's the other way around where there's a lot of infighting. And I know, Mike, you you read the book, The Brother Mankiewicz, because I, I listened to the writer on, on your show, because I had her on as well. And that happened to Joe Mankiewicz all the time. There was arguments. You know, they had to take it to the union and then be... Apparently, I think the rules used to be, I don't know what it's like now, but you could not direct and be the co-writer or, or the sole writer or something like that. I'm probably not getting that exactly right. But anyways, there was always a lot of arguing. But you're right, Otto. Could you imagine like all these writers being like, put the director's name on the thing? And while the set, they would come up with an ending and Lubitsch would look at it and they thought they came up with this great ending for a scene and then he would top it. And they did resent it because it was so good. It was a whole thing of one-upsmanship for these writers. No, this is funnier. No, this is fun. And just, you know, it's not like these modern comedies where, well, we'll, we'll just leave in every single line. You know, it's, it's no, you have to pick the best one yeah, and go they with land. that. And yeah. yeah, exactly. And they're fighting about which joke lands best. And that's what we're getting is the, and I know I'm making a pun here, a cream of the crop as far as this writing goes. And apparently the... The stuff in the third act, when they go back to Russia, a lot of that was Lubitsch and actually pulling from his experience being in Russia because he went there for, I think it was, what, 19 days or something before he left and did not have a good time in Russia when he went there. And a lot of the whole things of you know multiple people living in the same place and not being able to trust your neighbors and just some of these things came from his experience and was able to in inject that into a film which i thought was great apparently the couple he stayed with when he went to russia did not appreciate him putting that stuff in no well i'm not surprised i'm not surprised about that but just to backtrack a little bit to the cream joke was i thought the fact that the working class men in the restaurant were laughing because it. I took it also as just a step further that it's a, it's a joke against rich people because I mean I it's sort of almost like 
you know, the cream with the co- the black coffee without cream is a rich man's black coffee. And 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 black coffee without milk is for, for lower class or poor. So I almost envisioned it like here's this, you know, snob goes into like a diner and says, put it without cream, letting everyone know he's got money. And then maybe the waiter as a like, dig to say to him, well, we have it without milk, buddy. You know, so I thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, whether the waiter does it on purpose or not, it's definitely a joke. But of the joke, definitely the rich guy was assumed. Yeah, for sure. It's funny that Leon even knew that, but he's such because he's like this aristocrat. And what what I also thought was interesting about Leon was that off the top, I thought, well, maybe he's broke because he's talking about getting rich off her memoir. And then I'm like, he's not broke. And and I thought, again, that was another thing that was so true because, you know, people that I've known who, who have, you know, a let's say not necessarily super wealthy, but are, are have a good amount of money. I find they complain about not having money the most. And so, and I'm, and I'm thinking really like you're, what do you, what do you, what are you complaining that about that? You can't get your extra, I don't know, trip this summer or whatever. And it's like, and I thought that was, I wonder if that's what he was getting at. Cause this guy's like, man, you know, Leon's talking about getting rich. I thought, what do you need to, you're, you're an aristocrat. You've got a Butler. You don't work. <laughs> Unless I misread it. His only source of income was her, was the counter. Right, right. That's got all the money. But wasn't he an aristocrat? Wasn't he part of like a, an aristocrat? The world was filled with broke aristocrats at that point. I see, okay. Yeah, just because you had the title count didn't really make you anything at this point. Yeah. So maybe he was trying to even con her. Like maybe he knew that she had, you know, that by saying, well, you know, you can get rich. Because he says rich, he doesn't say rich. Or I assume she was rich. Maybe she's not rich. I don't know. Maybe she wasn't. Did they seem rich? I'm not exactly sure of her of of Swana's income, but she seems very well off. But I think when she fled from Russia from the revolution, that she probably took a lot of stuff with her, just not these jewels. That's what I assume. And the fact that he had a butler. I mean, if you have a butler, you gotta have some coin. Yeah, but he had he hasn't paid in two months though. Not only was he a count, but the guy who first hears that these Russian emissaries are there with her jewels. The waiter. He's a count. The visitor to Calver, the, the maid introduces him as count such and such. He's working as the waiter. So, yeah, Leanne doesn't have any money except. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, this film, I mean, there's so many details in this film. Like kind of like with the rules of the game, not that same kind of a film, but it's you have to see it again and again because we have a thick plot, we have so many characters, and there's and there's so it's there's so many details, so many points of views that you'd have to see it. I mean, you'd have to see it. It's like we said, if you've seen it once, you haven't seen it. You have to have seen it at least twice. So I had a very different experience the second time. So the third, I'm sure I'll have another different one. I've seen that waiter slash count described as a white Russian before, not the drink, obviously. And I don't think, because there's different terms for white Russians, and, and one of them is people that live not necessarily in Russia, but more in Poland and Moldova and these kind of things. But I think that in this case, they're talking about the white movement, the whole thing of the anti-communist or anti-Bolshevik 
people that were kind of counter-revolutionaries to the revolutionary movement. And I think that's why a lot of white Russians moved out of Russia is because they were on the, the wrong side of the revolution, so to speak. You read Russia. Right. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's any coincidence that Leon, the Melvin Douglas character, is named Leon, as in Leon Trotsky. I think it's very pointed that Leon is a, a great name for this character. And of course, you know, I'm sure, by reading that that Douglas was not the original guy, I guess. Like, William Powell was the original guy, then he got sick, and then Lubitsch went to Cooper, who turned it down. Which is kind of funny because I was getting I was getting a lot of ball of fire vibes from this. I think it was the whole idea of the funny old men that are trying to put together that slang dictionary really reminded me of the three Russian emissaries, especially you've got that firecracker of Barbara Stanwyck in there, and then this one you've got Garbo as the center of their world. I haven't seen that one. What's it called? Ball of fire? Yeah, that was Howard Hawks directed. So just two years after this. I, I love Ball of Fire, and I love this movie, but I did not make that connection, but that's interesting. What's so interesting about the love story, you know, because she falls for him, she falls in love with him, and it's interesting because I often wonder, I mean, I don't see, especially now, Jesus, or in such divisive times, I can't imagine you being, a let's say, a, a Donald Trump supporter and then and falling for someone who's a communist. <laughs> I mean, I think it would be like it would be like one in a how that could happen. And it made me wonder about political, you know, people having political differences, whether or not you I mean, maybe you'd be attracted to someone, but how far that could go. But what I thought was interesting here was that, I mean, Leon doesn't he doesn't say anything necessarily where he's he has strong political views. He's comfortable in the way, whereas she clearly does. But at the, but I, I felt that the, the love story was kind of getting at the fact that, you know, he does listen to her and you, that was like, not that he becomes a communist and he does change, you know, he's he, with the butler, of course, he's, he's got the Karl Marx book and everything. And, and she is seeing, you know, some good in this system as well. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe they don't necessarily jump bandwagons of their political views, but they they do listen, they do communicate, they do hear each other out. And I thought, well, and they, there's some kind of middle ground. I mean, I think the film is ultimately saying maybe we can find some kind of a middle ground here because there's some good things on both sides here. And and if we just listened more and communicated more and loved each other more. And I think that really, could you imagine if we did that today where we'd be, you know, but it's very, very hard. So because uh, I thought, well, there's got something to this love story. It's not just a love story plopped in the middle of these making fun of politics. I really saw it as embracing something about human communication as well as you know, let's all hear each other out. We all have different opinions. We don't have to cut each other's heads off because we don't agree. I don't know what you guys thought. Yeah, I definitely see them learning from each other and kind of coming to a shared appreciation. And I think 
you know, not to be flip about it, but I think it's that kind of love conquers all type thing. Just it doesn't matter what your politics are. Once you've got that attraction, you've got that attraction. And they, they, oh my God, the, the scene where she's feeling guilty about enjoying herself so much and then they put her up against the wall and shoot her. Oh, I love she puts the, you know, he puts the blindfold on her and the way he lifts up the blindfold and kisses her and then uses the, cork from the champagne as the shot and the way she collapses down to the ground i that is a brilliant brilliant scene so well done because of my personality and my personal beliefs her line no one can be so happy without being punished is one of my favorites in the film brilliant line i felt that melvin douglas's leon was pretty much apolitical i don't think he gave grant's ass about politics all he cared about was his own carnal pleasures and and you know uh that's that's it that's all he was really interested in and he was thrown off by the fact that he fell in love with it like he 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 never would have conceived of actually falling in love with anybody because it wouldn't have served his purposes in any way, and his purposes was just to have a good time. I, I imagine if he had to choose, though, he would. If he had to be put in a political situation, where you know, if you got, if you, if you, will you go to Russia or will you stay here? If you had to go to Russia, I think you know that he certainly. You'd even. I think people, even if people are not political, they're they're subconsciously, you know, have views that they may not necessarily be aware of where if it came push comes to shove i'm sure he'd be like well i'm not embracing <laughs> communism but at the same time i just felt that he he she does get through to him a little bit she does he you know she does get the wheels spinning in his mind about what she's all about politically speaking supposedly original script he has a business deal that falls through and he turns to the bottle and becomes a drunkard. And at the end of the film, he goes back to Russia with her. That was the, that was the initial screen, which got completely changed by Rupert Wilder and Rice. But that was the original screenplay by um, Berman and, uh, oh, I can't remember the other guy's name, S.N. Berman and somebody else who were originally assigned screenplay and Lubitsch came in and he didn't really like what they had so Lubitsch went and hired Reich to come in and help him rewrite their script and then even after he they did their draft of it the two of them did their draft of it then he he told MGM that he wanted them to borrow on loan from Paramount Bracket and Wilder and Bracket and Wilder came over and according to Billy Wilder they had everything pretty much done, but they were still having trouble with the setup of the film, the first 20 minutes. And he said, and Wilder said, Lubitsch used to do this all the time where he'd go into the toilet and then he'd come out of the toilet and he said, I got it. He's like, he said, it's the hat, the hat. She sees the hat when she comes in. She makes that comment about the hat, about who would make their women wear this. It won't be long now, comrades, because this civilization is so 
pathetic if this is what they want their women wearing. And then she, of course, succumbs to that hat, the frivolity of it later on. So, so really, yeah, the, apparently from what the original draft was, what it ended up being was, as we said earlier, a complete 180, a totally different story. Well, what was so interesting about that hat was it wasn't a simple symbol like the top hats were, you know, you, and he, and he even has the shot of those guys hats on the hat rack and then it dissolves to the top hats. And then like, it's such a rich guy's hat, but that hat is, uh, she's, she, I mean, from a subjective, obviously, maybe some people would think that is a nice fancy hat, but that is a really ridiculous hat. And the fact that she embraces it was, is, is almost like, it feels, feels as if, oh, this is an embrace of this capitalistic society. But obviously, he's, he's, he's making you think a little bit because you're looking at that and thinking, really? That hat looks like crap. And so it's like, whatever she's embracing, there's something off about this. you know. And if she's going to truly embrace capitalism, she's going to be going down a bad road. So I think the fact that he makes that look such, like a, such a strange hat is sort of giving that the audience that wink of like something's not right. That is something. There's some good things changing about her, but she may be going down a bad road here. It's just this. If it's hard to articulate, but I don't know if that anything about that particular hat stood out to you guys. I thought that was an interesting choice. Well, that hat. I mean, when we were watching this film again yesterday, my wife's like, "That looks like a dunce cap," and I'm like, "Yeah, I can kind of see that." And reading articles about it, there are people that are like, that hat wouldn't protect your head. It looks like it's hollow on the top. If it started to rain, the rainwater would just pour right down under your head. You know, it's not meant for being useful. It's not utilitarian. It is completely just fluff. It is what it is. And apparently Garbo was the one that designed that or sketched it out. Well, then I didn't know. I don't think, yeah, I don't think her buying of the hat in any way, at least for me, the way I read it, was not that she fell in love with the hat. But remember, we are shown that she bought the hat in the scene right after the restaurant scene, after she clapped and, and she cracked. So I see it as her embracing the frivolousness of it. Because I believe she even says something to him when she goes over and she's wearing it. And she kind of makes a joke about the hat that she's wearing. So I don't think it was in any way like this hat that she was enamored with and had fallen in love with it but couldn't admit it. I think it was that she was literally just embracing the frivolity of it all. This system. But you, just in terms of what you mentioned earlier, Mike, with the, when she talks about how guilty she was about happiness, it's interesting because... She doesn't attach guilt to or shame to to sex, which I thought was fascinating. And and there's she has no taboos around it. I mean, it's just and she cuts right to the chase because here's Leon with his seductions and his performances. I mean, people do that generally. I mean, what if you need something, you know, even asking nicely is a tactic. So, but I mean, he sort of is a little more conscious of his tactics that he uses. And he thinks he has to woo her. And she's just like, no, she's like, you know, you're, you're attractive enough or whatever. She says something Not that that's what she says, but along those lines. And um, she it's like, let's cut to the chase. You know, I'm attracted to you. You're attracted to me. Let's uh, let's have sex. And 
I thought that was interesting because, yeah, it's it's a need. It's a human need. And just like eating, just like drink. And even she even comments about when he asks her, hey, do you want anything to eat? And she's like, I don't know. I've added all the calendar calories necessary for the day. And so and apparently uh, I forget who was. I don't know if it was Lennon who said, well, you know, about sex, like sex is it's like drinking of water. It's like mess. It's a necessity. And so I just thought. That's that was really empowering that she sort of is in control in a sense of like, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to let you, you know, control me or or try to win me over or I'm, I see through your sticks. It's like, let's just let's just cut to the chase. And I think even today that would be that would be hard. I mean, there is such taboos around sex. And I, if we saw a female character so casual about sex, I think even today people would be a little a little stunned. You know, we're still, it's not, you know, in the 60s and 70s, things got a little casual about sex. And then the 80s came around and everyone couldn't look at it. But she's like that at that point of exactly what you just said. She's still looking at it as a utilitarian exercise. For at that point, love had not yet entered into it. Now, later on, I don't know if, if her attitude maybe been quite the same. But at that point, yeah, at that point, she's just looking at it the way you would uh, send a, a horse to stud or something you know it was not it had nothing to do with love in that in seat because at that point she had not actually cre- you know the 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 wall she had up around her had not t- come down yet she's guilty about feelings but not guilty about anything that's necessary which i thought was was interesting because it's like you know, we everything that we do has to just be out of necessity, and so feelings don't matter. So I thought that was really interesting for her for her character. But at the same time, they don't even portray her her communistic views as totally cold because when she gets drunk at the party, she, you know, and they're hitting the dance floor, she's like Frenchman comrades, and it's like she's gonna give a speech, and he's like, "Shut the fuck up!" You know, what are you gonna say? And then we you know when she goes in the bathroom and tells all the people working in the powder room to go on strike. I just thought that was so fascinating because she has, she's, it's not, she's just, she's not just falling in line. She has a passionate view about, about what she believes. And, and again, I, I thought that was really unique because it, it looked as though at a certain point, it looked as though, oh, she's just going to embrace the West and stay there. And I like how he made it messier and more. It's not going to be that simple. That's like the, the Hollywood version. <laughs> well, speaking of the Hollywood version, I'm really glad that Countess Swana is such a good villain in this. And I'm so glad that this didn't become in modern romance movies. There's always that moment where there's a misunderstanding between the man and the woman and they break up for a while, but then they realize, no, we're actually great for each other. And they, they make it, you know, it's that boy loses girl boy gets girl back type of thing and in this one i was like oh my god this could go wrong so easily leon could go to countess Swana and say listen they've got the jewels in their room i can sneak in there and get these jewels and we are on easy street or how about i work with this ninochka and talk her down off of this price or something you know they, they they're Turns into trouble, trouble in paradise a little bit. <laughs> but they don't go that way. And then even when the jewels end up missing, it's Countess Swana who's like, oh no, I'm the one that took them. You think Leanne took them? No, I'm the one that took them. 
And there's never that moment of misunderstanding. There's there's no time after they get together where he does not love her. And I'm just like, wow. And then he's just trying to prove it, prove it, prove it to the point where he's like, I have to get her out of Russia or I want to go to Russia and he can't get into Russia because you've got that Russian official that's just like, nope, no visa. Who's that? George Tobias, I think it is. Yeah, he punches him in the nose. <laughs> you know, Mike, thank you for saying that because that is a, the part of screwball comedies that always kind of annoyed me. And I thought the same exact thing last night when I was watching this, that I love the fact that she comes to her the next day and says, oh, Leon didn't take them. So-and-so took them for me because he knew that they were there. You were very careless in leaving everything open. And he came in and took them. It was that Russian again. It was the waiter. Who was, again, some cow something or other. I don't know. Well, what was interesting there was that she didn't even have to do that because even if she took those jewels, and, and I think Ninochka says that to her, she's like, well, you can't just take it. We're going to trial. Maybe there, there's a couple of things there. Maybe he's making the audience think it's going to go the, the normal screwball comedy route, but then he's like, we're not going there. And it puts the audience off balance because you can't get ahead of it. You can't predict what's going on. And I just thought, well, she probably did that to you know, possibly to humiliate her, say like, look at what I just did. You got, you think you're so cold and controlling and on top of things. And I found a way to pull one over on you. And, and, and I thought again, yeah, you're right. I mean, she, I mean, she is sort of the villain of the piece. And, and what was interesting was that in that same scene, you know, she talks about how she lost all the Russian people. And then a little later she talks about, you know, holding this thing up in the court for the next couple of years until I guess she would delay trials or whatever so that, you know, the, so the people in Russia wouldn't have any money. And I'm like, if these are your people, you want them to starve? She clearly didn't give a shit. It's all about winning. And then, of course, winning Leon, you know, sorry, trying to ruin the relationship that she sees happening between Leon and Ninochka, which, again, brilliant. But she even underestimates that the power of that relationship because she goes to make the Nachka leave assuming that Leon will just automatically come back to her. He's going to her that morning to tell her, I hate to tell you this, but it's hard for me to believe myself when I've actually fallen in love and, you know, this is over between us. And even she says, wait a minute, is this some sort of regeneration? <laughs> like, are you actually changing as a human being? Like that surprised her because she had just gone through this, making this plot up to get rid of Nanotska and ultimately getting rid of her didn't change anything because he was still in love with her and she wasn't going to give him back anyway. So she underestimated the power of that relationship on because, right, which she really is Swana really capable of loving anything or anyone but her? I don't, and I, I thought it was so interesting is when we first see her, she's looking in, in a mirror, you know, so it's that vanity. She's constantly looking at her in mirrors and she's, and she, she's caught, again, she can never just be direct. Everything like that scene with Greta Garbo, I didn't even know what the hell she was talking about. <laughs> and she almost tries to make fun of Greta Garbo by say, acting as if Greta Garbo would know as Nidachka when she's talking about. And I love how she's like, no, I got it. 
You gave her a dog, or what are you... Billy, and we can be proud of our Punchy. He had a triumph for the dog show. He won another blue ribbon and bit the judge. <laughs> I bought him the loveliest little sweater as a reward. You should see him strutting down the street in it. He looks like a little boulevardier. <laughs> you see, Condalgo gave me Punchy for my birthday. <laughs> you must have searched for weeks before you found anything as divine as Punchy, didn't you, Leon? Months, one. <laughs> oh, poor Madame Yakushova. Here we are talking in mysteries. I'm sure you wonder what it's all about. Not at all. I understand perfectly. Count Dargu gave you a dog. You made it very clear, madame. Oh, dear me. I must be losing my finesse. That's the genius of his writing. It's never just explicit. People are never just like, you know, that's where it becomes soap, right? Where everyone, people just say what's exactly on their mind and everyone's exactly explicit with what they mean. And he makes everything passive aggressive. And and people are, are like that in life. We never just say we don't know necessarily know what we feel or what we mean. So some subconscious often. So that really stood out to me just in that scene. I thought, wow. I love the way that they play around with Garbo and her persona at this point. Because Garbo, you know, I know, Otto, you said you weren't a big fan of hers. I have only seen the, like I said, Queen Christina and then the Joyless Street. And I think maybe that's it. I think I... And she was huge. You know, she was major star. And I love that her famous line, and I don't even know if she actually says, I want to be alone, or if she says, I want to be left alone in Grand Hotel. I want to be alone. We want to be alone. But one day I shall find myself alone. I want to be alone. I shall probably be quite alone. Maybe you'd rather be alone. We were afraid you might be getting pretty lonely. It seems so lonely, Yvonne. No more than usual. I just want to be alone. You want to be alone, comrade? No. But that became like the play it again, Sam, for Greta Garbo. And in this movie, there's at least two times where she talks about being alone. And especially when there's the butler, there's Melvin Douglas, there's her. And she's like, we want to be alone. And I'm just like, okay, they're totally playing up into her persona here, which is great. And just, you know, I think you guys mentioned it before. The first time that she talked in movies, when sound came in, the the tagline for the movie was Garbo speaks, Garbo talks. And this one, it was Garbo laughs. And they had that before they even wrote the script. They're just like, this is how we're going to sell this movie. You know, this was the tagline that inspired a great work of art. And what a laugh, too. I mean, her face, I thought she was incredible in this. And when when she's cold, she's just dead cold. And when she laughs, she beams. I mean, she just looked like another person. I thought her behavior, uh, it was just night and day, and it was so perfect for this part. So, again, I could only go by this film. I know, Otto, you said you weren't too crazy about her, but I'd have to see her other movies. <laughs> Because she was so celebrated. And what the guys who came from Germany, too, who had worked with her there, can't remember if it was Max Reinhardt's son or if it might have been Reich. I can't remember who, but one of them even said all of her performances were pretty much one note. And this one stands out because of, you know, because of the fact. And by the way, I don't want us. To leave this session without mentioning the fact, at least for me, I think it's significant that what changes her is laughter. And Mike, 
said earlier about about this, you know, there was it sort of reminded you of Ball of Fire. And what I thought about last night when I was watching this again, because I hadn't seen it in a couple of years, was the connection with Sullivan's Travels, which was also 1941. It came two years after this. And that, of course, is the great Sturgis film where he's basically, Joel McRae is basically playing Sturgis, this guy who has been making all these hit comedies and he feels like he's his life because all he's doing is making comedies and he wants to do this important, serious work. And he goes out to try to meet the real people. And then what he discovers is that what's most important to those real people and what they need more than anything other than money <laughs> is laughter is some lift their spirits. And I just think it's, I don't think it's an accident that what transforms her in this, even before love, is laughter. And it's just how I'm reading it. But Oh, I totally agree. And I know in that, that article I read, he, he, talk, he, he talks about just in terms of comedy is that, you know, Leon thinks that he's funny because of his stories. And, but Really, what is funny is the surprise, right? The spontaneous when people are not trying to do something, but when they happen organically. And so the fall is is funny because it's so surprising. It's not because he fell on his ass. <laughs> I mean, it is that for maybe the workers and maybe her to an extent, but also because it was just such a surprise. And I thought that was really a really clever point that. Again, I wouldn't have looked at it that way. And of course, it's the double meaning of he falling and falling in love, which must have been intentional. Yeah, there's a lot of intentionality in here. Just like when they go back to Russia and they are meeting back at Ninochka's place where she lives with at least two other people. Plus, they seem to have like a common bathroom. You've got the guy who's coming through and, you know, and they all have to stop talking when he comes through. But that whole thing of, We'll each bring an egg and we'll make an omelet. And then poor uh, Bujanov, his egg breaks. And then to read about, you know, the the Soviet, I can't remember the politician's name, who was just like, oh, yeah, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. Uh, Kag- Kaganovich is the guy's name. And I was just like, okay, well, that yeah, that that's good. Yeah, they're. In that case, it's breaking skulls, basically. <laughs> you, know, you, you can't make a new co- country without breaking a few skulls, comrades. Sorry about that. So, like I said, the purges and all this, you know, they were known. The fewer but stronger Russians, right? So fewer but better Russians there. But we, we, I can't believe we haven't talked about the fourth build person in this movie. Oh, Bella the Ghost. I didn't even recognize him at first. Who's appearing for, for all of, I mean, not, is he even on screen for five minutes? I don't even know. It's gotta be. It's gotta be at four at mo four three or four minute scene at most. That was wild, and they because they talk about this resin and a lot throughout the entire thing. They're just like, you know, oh, you want you want to talk to the guy that we sent last time? Well, you're gonna have to talk to his widow. You know, just like resin is not to be trifled with. But he loves Ninochka when she comes in and she's done all of this work and has put together this huge report for him. And he's just like, how did you do this so quickly? And she's like, I do not need sleep. I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but, you know, they were they could kind of be playing off his, by that time, his, even at that point in 1939, he was Dracula. And what, what is Dracula? Dracula sucks the blood out of you. 
I figured that's why he was cast. The monster. <laughs> so I thought that kind of maybe played. I mean, I thought that was incredible casting to with that. That scene you mentioned with when they break eggs. That that was another thing about her is that when you see her marching, she seems so sad. But it's not necessarily because she's back in Russia. It's because she's missing Leon. And even if you see her in the apartment, you know, that one woman I really admired the nightgown she had. And she's like, take it, you know, and like and which, again, was so that communist, you know, like I'm not, I'm not attached to possessions. Go ahead and take it. And the same with the omelet, like you mentioned, Mike, when the when the one egg broke, she's like, hey, there's plenty over here. <laughs> So, so, so even though she's crying at the end and, you know, and we hear, it was funny at the same time, we hear one guy snoring, one guy coughing because they're all in the same room. Again, it, it pops out as, oh, look at these ugly communists. Look at the way they live, which is true. But at the same time, she's not crying about that. She's just crying because he's out of her life, which, man, the nuance is brilliant. The one joke, I don't know if it lands or not. It feels like the, because I read the screenplay and the, the movie ends, the three delegates, Ironoff, Buzhanov, and Kopalski have gone to Turkey or Constantinople and they're there and they're getting in all these this trouble and Resonin is like, you have to go save these guys again. And they come to find out, oh, Leon's there, and he's the one that helped write a, write the telegraph about how awful we are being here in Constantinople in order to have this machination happen to to send her to them. It basically the the screenplay ends with them coming together, and you know that they're going to be a couple, and that's it. In the movie version, they tack on that one little joke at the end, where it's their restaurant, and it's Bujanov. Ironoff, Bozhinov, Kapalski, but Kapalski's name isn't lit up. And then you see Kapalski with a, a placard saying that Ironoff um, and Bozhinov are being unfair to Kapalski. Which such a capital mistake. And you get a little, yeah, you get like a little hint of, of what's that Russian song, Orishnikorna, Black Eyes or whatever it is. I just realized like Russians... Where that song, where I know that song from mostly, is from my man Godfrey. And like, there's another Russian character inside of that, and he's singing that song in that movie. So I guess Russians were pretty popular at this time. But. That was a lot. That last shot was just, again, it's sometimes I wonder, well, how could people have at the time, you know, this swung an election in favor of the Christian. Democrats, and I'm like, look at that last shot. If you don't see that as a big joke against capitalism, I don't, I don't know. I mean, pe- people got to stop looking at things casually. I think. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I thought it just proved that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Basically, and power is eventually corrupted, and it's just going to keep happening. And now here's a strike, and who knows what that'll lead to. There's even a joke they make when, because at one point, you know, they're, 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 they're so sad that they're not in Paris anymore. And when she gets them to look out the window and he, he one of the guys mentions seeing a bird that must be from France. Just see how happy the people look from here. Can you blame them? At least the May Day Parade is over. That's another thing. It's spring. The same spring we had in Paris. Just as good. Even the swallows are back. Really? 
Yes, that's right. Maybe it's the same swallow we saw in Paris. Mm. Yes, it is Ninochka. It is. He must have been in Paris. You can see it in his whole attitude. He just picked up a crumb of our black bread, shook his head and dropped it. It reminds me of the rules of the game a little bit. How we just get these like, these casual conversations, but they they everything we're hearing is speaks volumes. Every line is is a quotable, memorable line almost. Falls into the category of of a Casablanca or a Godfather or you know, where there's so many, so many memorable lines. <laughs> This came out in 1939. 1939 is one of those banner years for movies. People still talk about 1939 as being just this mark of the golden age of Hollywood. You know, Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, Stagecoach, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Oklahoma Kid. You know, just so many movies that we still talk about today. A lot of people, including Greta Garbo, were up for Oscars this year, and Gone with the Wind just wiped them out. It was one of those years like Silence of the Lambs or Everything Everywhere All at Once, where it just dominated the Oscars, and very few other films won apart from Gone with the Wind. Another year, the Oscars got it all wrong, which is every year. Imagine that. Imagine that. And remember that Jukor apparently was the guy who was originally supposed to direct this film, and he lost because he wanted to direct Gall of the Wind. And then, as we all know, he got fired from Gall of the Wind because Gable was afraid of Jukor, who was known as a woman's director, that he would give the picture to, to Lee, which it was going to be hers anyway. Jukor ended up directing, I believe, another great film from 1939 called The Women. Yeah, so apparently Chuker's one big contribution to this film was that he cast Ina Clare as Countess Swana. That was his his choice, apparently. One thing that I noticed with the with the, I mean, this is thirty nine, so now we're in the uh, when the production code became so so strict post thirty five. And one thing I noticed was that even in his pre code films. His he always like they seem coded. Everything was never nothing was ever direct. For if you watch other pre-code films, they will say sex. They will it's blatant. And he always like he was pre-code. He he was doing the coded dialogue before the writers had to do it. But that's part of his genius. That's probably why he succeeded so much even after thirty-five. Bile all used to say that Lubitsch. Rather than showing you two plus two equals four and telling you, rather than telling you two plus two equals four, what he did was show you two plus two. And then he let the audience add it up in his mind. And Wilder said it was always obvious, but it was not stated outwardly. By doing so, not only was every, the, the humor more subtle and everything, but he also made the audience feel smarter. He thought he made them matter about themselves, like they were figuring these things out, even though he set it up so they would obviously figure. One of my favorite Wilder stories was when he told about making of the seven-year itch, which he made from a Broadway play. And in the Broadway play, apparently, because I've never seen it done on stage, but in the play... The young girl and the, and the married guy sleep together that one night. And of course, Hollywood wouldn't let Wilder do that in the film. 
And Wilder says in one of the books, he's like, I tried to do it because, you know, Wilder had in his office a sign that Howard Lubitsch do it. What I wanted to do was I just begged them to let me show a picture of a woman's hairpin on the bed. To get the message across. Oh, I right. And they wouldn't let him do it. But he's like, that's what Lubitsch would have done because it was so subtle, but so obvious and simple, you know? Close the door. He was like the king of the closed doors, right? Two people go into a room, close the door, and then, wait, 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 you know, we're not saying anything's going on in there, but yet they totally are. Think of the off-screen action that you're not seeing, but you're imagining. I mean, even even with the French maids in this film, I mean, I don't think anything happened physically, but the one when the one woman come out, she's kind of like, she looks a little disheveled. She's I'm like, disheveled, what yeah. I'm her. And I was like, what is the hell did they do? I love that. They, she comes back with the two other cigarette girls. And then when uh, Ninochka comes in, she's like, you have been smoking too much. <laughs> and you've been smoking a lot. That was yes. brilliant. And just, just the way they cheered. Just the, yeah. Like, I was like, they're at a sporting arena. Like, it was hilarious. Or you see the three maid or the three cigarette girls, they talk about it outside of you before they go in, saying that if you ring three times, they send up a French maid. And I think it's Sig Rumor says, let's go call nine times or something. <laughs> All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break. And we'll be back with an interview with Joseph McBride, the author of the books Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge, and How Did Lubitsch Do It? And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Hello, everyone. This is Malcolm McDowell. I just want to say that uh, this is a request to listeners of the Projection Booth podcast to become patrons of the show via patreon.com. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash projection booth that's pretty simple i think you can do that it's a great show and mike he provides hours of great entertainment so now it's time to give back my little droogies settle down and take a listen and have a sip of the old malocco and then you'll be ready for a little of the old in out in out real horror show bye-bye Professor McBride, we are talking about Ninochka, which is kind of a intersection here between two of your subjects. Obviously, you've written about so many things over the years, but I know we talked at one point about how did Lubitsch do it from 2018, your book on him. And then since then, you've done Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge from 2021, both published by Columbia University Press. Where were each of them at this point in their careers when Ninochka came together? Both of them were in a transitional stage. Lubitsch was considered the leading director in Hollywood for a long time, although his career was a little shaky in the late 30s because the code had come into effect in 1934, which affected him strongly because one of his fortes was sexual suggestion and innuendo, and he developed a style of ellipsis and subtlety and innuendo managed to get a lot across without being crude or vulgar. And the censors, one of them complained, he said, 
we know what he's saying, but we can't figure out how he's saying it, so we can't censor it. He elevated American cinema to a much more adult level when he came here in 1922 and revolutionized the romantic comedy with The Marriage Circle in 1925 was his most influential film, and, and he helped invent the musical in 1929 with The Love Parade, etc. But some of his films, his films did well at the box office, not great because they were considered rather highbrow. But by the late 30s, the more gentle kind of romantic comedy was an eclipse to some extent because after The Code came in, Lubitsch took a hiatus to try to figure out how to regroup his career. And he invo- he created more invisible style in the Hollywood method. A lot of filmmakers worked in invisible mode where you're not supposed to be aware of the camera. His pre-code work, the camera is quite mobile and points you in different directions. And epitome of that style is Trouble in Paradise, 1932, really probably the greatest romantic comedy ever made. But he does a lot of wizard wizardly tricks with the camera, but always in the service of the story. But then he had to be even more subtle, and he came back with Angel in 1937, which is an amazing film because it's about a woman, upper-class woman played by Mar- Marlena Dietrich, who is married to an important British statesman, and she nips off to Paris to go to what is unmistakably a brothel for f- kicks, and she has a double life, and it's like Lubitsch's Belle de Jour, in a sense. And it's amazing he got away with that in 1937. And it's so subtle. It's a masterpiece of subtlety. And it's just, it had some problems with the censors, but he did some reshooting and recutting, and it's a very good film. But because of the code, Andrew Saris pointed out that what happened was just showing people having any kind of sexual relations was more difficult even than before. And so they... The screwball comedy came out of that, where people express their sexual attraction with hitting each other and pushing each other around and violence. There's a line in which a psychiatrist in Howard Hawks' screwball comedy, Bringing Up Baby, says, the love impulse in man expresses itself in terms of conflict, and that really captures the genre. So Lubitsch tried to do that, and it was not really congenial for him, because he was more gentle and romantic, and he did Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, 1938 Paramount film. And it's a very uncharacteristic film, very unpleasant film, in my opinion. It's Claudia Colbert and Gary Cooper hitting each other, pushing each other around. Just, and when you see the trailer, it's shocking that Paramount was saying, here's the Lubitsch touch, and they're slugging each other, and it's extremely unpleasant. Paramount dropped Lubitsch at that point. The studio was had some shaky financial times in the 30s, too, and they just felt that he was passe, or not as okarana as some of these other filmmakers, such as Capra and Hawks and whatever. So he was without a project in 1938. Now we get to Billy Wilder. Wilder was a refugee from Hitler. He joked that Lubitsch was one of the talented ones who came voluntarily to America. He didn't have to flee. And he, But Lubitsch was also Jewish, but he was in America long before the Nazi regime took power. But Wilder had to flee. He was a screenwriter and journalist in Berlin, and he went to Paris, co-directed a film. Then he fortunately got into America to work at various studios, Columbia starting, and then other ones. And But he was a junior writer, and he didn't know the language, English. He had to learn laboriously, and it's 
He said it's very hard for a writer to write in a new language. Joseph Conrad did it, but it's really hard. Nabokov did it. Weiler learned by listening to radio shows, entertainment shows, and sports programs, and dating American women, and reading comic books, and all kinds of stuff. He got very adept in American lingo, but he was struggling as a screenwriter. And my book on him, one of the things I wanted to do is look at all this work that he did in both Germany and America in his formative period before he became a director again in 1942. Most people hadn't looked at these films or written about them, but they're an odd lot. Partly he was stereotyped as a middle European operetta kind of writer, which is, it's, it's funny when you look at his body of work, he was involved in a lot of musicals or semi-musicals, and you don't think of him as director of musicals. He did one flat-out musical, Emperor Waltz, which is his oddest film. But he worked on various European confections for the studios. And then he worked on some other kinds of films, a whole potpourri of things. But often he was rewritten or had to work with other collaborators. And most of the films are not particularly good. There's one called Champagne Waltz, which is interesting because it has the Billy Wilder recognizable male character played by Fred McMurray, who's a kind of wisecracking American jazz musician who's in Vienna, and he's competing with the old Viennese tradition of Strauss waltzes and things. And it's a very clever film, but it was rewritten, and Wilder was very disappointed by that. But he was hooked up at Paramount by a guy named Manny Wolf, who was their story editor, who was a very smart guy, obviously, because he hooked Wilder up with Charles Brackett. Brackett was a senior writer. He had been a writer for The New Yorker, and he was part of the Algonquin Roundtable a very conservative man. He was a Republican. He was a bank president, came from a wealthy family, and but he was a man from the literary world, and he was, of course, highly fluent in English, which Wilder wasn't. So Wilder leaned on him for that. Wilder was very clever with the language, but he always felt he needed a collaborator, even in later years. He worked with Brackett for a long time, and then he worked with I.E.L. Diamond after a period where he worked with various people, but he felt more comfortable with collaborator. So Brackett helped him a lot, and they were teamed. They didn't get along very well. They were seen as the, quote, happiest couple in Hollywood, which was an illusion because when Brackett's diaries came out a few years ago, they were full of animosity toward Wilder. From the very beginning, he was fascinated by Wilder, but he also didn't like certain abrasive aspects of his personality and some of the, his leftist point of view, et cetera. So they were an odd couple, and they sparred, and Brackett keeps saying, I want to get out of this relationship, and it's like a bad marriage where you keep threatening to leave and you never get out. And they finally broke up over the HUAC hearings in 1947, where Wilder was defending very bravely for an immigrant the, the civil rights of blacklisted people and writers who defended their right to freedom of expression. And Brackett was against those writers, and they had some furious arguments and decided not to work together again. But they did one more film after they were working on a foreign affair at the time, and then they did Sunset Boulevard, and they broke up. But so in 1937, Manny Wolf sent them in to see Lubitsch, and Lubitsch was looking for kind of fresher writers, and he knew Wilder a little bit. And Wilder, Lubitsch didn't like to work with Germans a lot because he was... German, and he felt he didn't want to be typecast as working exclusively with people of his own background. So he was 
not eager to hire Wilder, but they got along. They clicked, and this meeting went well, and they wrote Bluebeard's Eighth Wife for him. And as I said, it wasn't what I think is a good Lubitsch film. It has Wilder's brash point of view very clearly in the sort of abrasive, wisecracking style. I think Wilder, part of what I say in my book is he was a closet romantic. He was much more romantic than people realized because he had this veneer of being this tough guy, wisecracking, cynical. They use the word cynical a lot with Wilder. And one time I unthinkingly used it with him. And I said something about beneath your cynicism is romanticism. And he said, if I'm cynical, what adjective do you have for peck and pop pictures? And he said, every play by Ibsen was cynical. Every play by Strindberg was cynical. And I said, I don't mean to stigmatize you with that word. So one thing I do in my book is to try to show that he was Diamond called a disappointed romantic, that he had been hurt a lot. He was a Jewish outsider and anti-Semitic Vienna and then Berlin and persecuted and came to America. So he was he developed a veneer for self-protection, but underneath was romantic, and it came out in his later work very strongly. But so, so then we have, okay, it's, they're working well with Lubitsch, and Ninochka came to be through a weird series of Hollywood musical chairs. Originally, George Cukor was going to direct this film. Gottfried Reinhardt started the project. He was Max Reinhardt's son. Max was the great theater director in Europe who Lubitsch had worked for. But Max Reinhardt wanted to do a comedy with Garbo at MGM, and they were going to sell it with the slogan, Garbo Laughs, one of the most famous ad lines ever. She had actually laughed in a couple films before, but she was known for tragedy. And he had a whole series of writers. There were 10 writers who worked on this project before Brackett and Wilder came in. And some of the people contributed certain elements that wound up in the film, but the script was not coming together. Kukar left to do Gone with the Wind, and then he got fired from that. And Lubitsch was going to do The Women at MGM from the Claire Booth Luce play. And then when Kukar was fired, he took over The Women, and Lubitsch wanted to do The Shop Around the Corner, which is this beautiful film he made in 1940 for MGM. Small-scale, warm human comedy about people working in a shop in Budapest. And oddly enough, he couldn't get it made at studios. They, were, they thought it was too gentle for that, too unglamorous for that period. So he, con- he contrived a way to do it by going to MGM and saying, I'll do Ninochka if I can also do Shop Around the Corner as a kind of lower-budget film. And that's what happened. And so it wound up being the perfect director for the perfect project. And Lubitsch had always wanted to work with Garbo, and they just hadn't found a project. And she was, she said, while she was working with him, she said, he's the first and only great director I've had at Hollywood, which is quite a compliment. And so Brackett and Wilder worked with Lubitsch and Walter Reich, who is a very good screenwriter who Wilder had worked with back in Berlin. And uh, they, they wrote one. Is really one of the greatest screenplays ever written. And Brackett and Wilder both said later that they thought Lubitsch deserved writing credit on this film. And they actually petitioned, the three writers petitioned the Writers Guild, then called the Screenwriters Guild, to actually give Lubitsch one of the writing credits. And the Guild turned them down because they were they had just been formed and one of their big issues was credit because the studios were prone to give credit to producers and directors and the brother-in-law of the producer or whatever. And so the Guild was very strict about giving credit to directors, so they said no. But both Brackett and Wilder said 
for the truth be known, Lubitsch always collaborated on his films. And uh, Wilder actually said he's the greatest writer who ever lived. So we can talk all about that process, but I wanted to bring your listeners up to how did this film come to be? It actually, now to just finish your question, this catapulted Billy Wilder into the big time, both this and Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, but especially this one, because here's a writer who had just come to Hollywood six years before, but by 1939, he's writing a classic film that was a big hit and got a lot of recognition and made him an important screenwriter. Lubitsch was back on track, making a very popular film and his kind of film, and he, he had worked out how to do it in the new Hollywood of the code, and it's very sexy, but extremely subtle, and but it's also very, as Billy Wilder said, the Lubitsch touch, he said the village idiot can figure it out, but it makes you feel very intelligent because it's clear that you put your brain to work. And Lubitsch said one plus one, a lot of directors say one plus one equals four, two plus two equals four, but Wilder said Lubitsch just gave you two plus two and you have to add it up yourself. And he said, if you do that, they will love you for it. He had become at the top rank of directors again, and it's one of his great masterpieces. So it really put them both in the highest rank again and, and helped both of their careers a lot. That's like they had a really good working relationship. Yeah, Wilder and Libet became good friends. They didn't work together again after Nanachka, partly because Wilder was at Paramount and Lubitsch had split with Paramount. But Wilder even moved in with Lubitsch for a while. Lubitsch had a serious heart attack in 1943. His health started to fail. And... Uh, Lubit Wilder moved in with him and took care of him, and it was a real father-son, mentor-mentee relationship, and tremendous respect. And Wilder has this famous sign on his wall, Saul Steinberg did this beautiful calligraphy, how would Lubitsch do it? He had that sign on his wall throughout his later career. He would always, he said often, try to think how, not always, he didn't try to imitate Lubitsch as much. There's two things that Lubitsch would approve of, he said, because it's very hard to imitate Lubitsch. Even if you try, he said, it's, it'll be like Lubitsch, but it'll never be Lubitsch. There's a certain secret formula that Lubitsch had that was just wonderful. Are you aware of what Lubitsch brought to the screenplay versus what the other writers had put in there already? Lubitsch, most people don't know this. He was a Russian citizen when he was born because his father had fled Russia because they were having pogroms against Jews and he ironically felt that Berlin was more hospitable to Jews. And Lubitsch's parents died before Hitler took over, but the whole neighborhood where Lubitsch came from was all the Jews were killed either there or in concentration camps. But, so Lubitsch was a Russian citizen, and so that exempted him from service in the Great War and saved his life, and we're glad he didn't become cannon fodder like so many German soldiers and people from other countries that so he, instead, he worked in the theater and films and became a director during that period and a movie star. But so when he has a Russian commissar played by Garbo coming to Paris to sell jewels that the czarist regime had these very valuable jewels and the Soviets needed money. And so Lubitsch could really relate to a Russian person, although the gag, a lot of the humor in Nanachka comes from the fact that she has no sense of humor at the beginning, and then she learns under the tutelage of this kind of worthless Parisian gigolo played by Melvin Douglas, who is very much a Billy Wilder kind of guy. Wilder had worked as a tea dancer, they called it in Berlin, dancing with ladies for tips at night, but 
hotels. He wrote a great series called Waiter, Bring Me a Dancer, which kind of made him famous in Berlin journalism. It would make a great movie. It's all about what it's like to have that job. And it's like being a gigolo, but he makes a point of saying he never had sex with these women. But he told me the series was semi-fictional and semi-authentic, but it was wonderfully written. But anyway, Lubitsch also had gone to Russia, Soviet Union, for his honeymoon with his second wife. It seems like maybe an odd place to go for your honeymoon in 1936 to Stalin's Russia. And he was horrified by what he found in Stalin's Russia. And he was a liberal, but unlike a lot of people in the left liberal side in Hollywood, he was under no illusions about Stalin's brutality. And he was horrified and he cut the trip short. And Lubitsch was said to have modeled Danachka's initially humorless character as a slavish communist ideologue on the actress and writer Ingeborg von Wangenheim, who we visited in Moscow. Inga, as she was called, was the wife of Gustav von Wangenheim, who had acted for Lubitsch and Cole Easel's daughters in Romeo and Juliet. They'd been living in Moscow since 1933 as dedicated adherents of communism. And when Inga finally caught up with Nunachka in the 1970s, she proved its validity by denouncing that film in her memoirs as, quote, a counter-revolutionary concoction. <laughs> so he had found his model for Nunachka, and Paris was the place that he loved. There's a famous quote from him. He says, I've been to Paris, France, and I've been to Paris, Paramount, and I prefer Paris, Paramount. Paris, Paramount was the concoction, the artificial studio creation, and he loved making films set in Europe. Most of his films made in America are actually set in Europe, partly because he could get away with more because the audience would think, oh, those naughty Europeans, they were more sophisticated about sex and adultery and more cosmopolitan. And so he could love foreign setting. So it's, you can see his trademark all over that. And, but then you have Billy Wilder coming along. Wilder and Brackett brought, I think, a lot of the topical political satire, Lubitsch, Late in his life, was assessing his work. He said, for satire, I've never done anything better than Nanachka, the political accommodation of political satire and a love story. So you mentioned that Lubitsch actually started out life as a Russian citizen, much like Nanachka herself. In 1935, long after he had come to America, the Nazis stripped Jewish Berliners of their German citizenship. He had become a German citizen over the years. And he didn't become an American citizen until 1936, and that was probably triggered by what happened with the Nazis, and, and he had come to America in 1922. So he had this affinity with Russia, and the reason he went to Russia on his second honeymoon was his second wife was Russian ancestry too, And but he was really horrified by what he saw there in Stalin's Russia, their cruelty and the privation. Nanachka has some very funny and sharp gags about how everybody has to live in one apartment and there's no privacy. And But the film, what the film does satirizes both sides of the ideological divide in a somewhat even-handed way, which is quite remarkable. It gives the best arguments for both Nanachka and Leon. Frank Capra, as I've mentioned before, said that you should give your villains the best arguments you can give them. And Nanashka's not really a villain, but she's a humorless foil at the beginning. And she has good arguments about the achievements of the Soviet Union and about the cruelty of the czarist regime. And there's the uh, the exiled white Russian 
aristocrat who's living in Paris, very cruel. She yearns for the good old days where they could whip peasants and that kind of thing. And so it revolves around selling the diamonds that they took from the white Russian woman. Originally in the pre-Lubitsch run-up to Nanashka, originally in the pre-Lubitsch version of Nanashka, as they were working on it, she came to Paris to sell a nickel mine. And Walter Reich, one of the three credited screenwriters, changed it to diamonds. And Lubitsch liked that because he said you can photograph them sparkling on the tits of a woman, <laughs> which is very, very Lubitschian, racy, but also very good visual thing. It's uh, If you have a nickel mine, you have to envision it in your head, and it's not as interesting as diamonds or an object. It's a MacGuffin in the Hitchcockian term. The Countess is very cruel, and Ninochka is not that cruel, And but she's tough. She talks about how she killed a young man during the violent period, and so she she gives good arguments for Soviet Russia, but also Lubitsch and Wilder highlight the bad aspects of Stalinism in ways that were very unusual for American films back then, when there was still a lot of sympathy or confusion that blinded people to the crimes of Stalin. Billy Wilder created many of the anti-Soviet gags, and he was the kind of guy who, if you've seen one, two, three, he loved to, to mock both sides, scattershot. He didn't spare anybody in his political satire. And he was asked by Michel Simon if he worried about that with one, two, three, and he said, now, when the revolution comes, they'll line me up against a cellophane wall and shoot me, and that's fine with me. He liked to be attacked from all sides, but many of the anti-Soviet gags in the film came from Billy Wilder, who was equal opportunity satirist. He attacked all sides in One, Two, Three, for example. Uh, it's a similar film, has some affinities with Ninochka. But he was concerned as liberal leftist that he had offended the USSR, and he said to Life magazine in 1944, he said, I've always wanted to see Odessa, and I'm, now I'm afraid we never will. And his writing partner, Charles Brackett, says, I can last a long time without seeing Odessa. And Brackett, that's revealing because Brackett was a right-wing conservative, and that's the source of much of the antagonism between them. Wilder, as I mentioned, was anti-HUAC when they had their big hearings in the fall of 47 against Hollywood, and he was furious. At one point, he said, I spit upon the Congress of the United States, which is a strong statement. He was immigrant. He loved America. He loved the freedom and democracy we had here. He said the best thing about America was the Supreme Court, and today he would have a different view, I'm sure. But he and Brackett had a bitter argument. That was the cause of their split, because Brackett was defending HUAC. Now, Lubitsch, at the very end of his life, was criticizing Huac at a party. They were talking, and he was very against the Red Scare, even though he was... He had pulled out of the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League for a while after coming back from Russia because he didn't want to be involved in anything that supported Stalinist Russia at all, even though, he, of course, he was strongly anti-Nazi and helped a lot of refugees come to Hollywood. And but no, So the film gives both sides... Criticisms and compliments, and Leon defends capitalism in a way that is appealing, but also Nanachka says that he's the product of a doomed culture, and we can see what she's talking about, that he's a frivolous playboy living off 
the lap of the land. He's also defending luxury, which is very Lubitschian. Lubitsch loved luxury and good living. And when Nanachka changes clothing from her severe commissar's outfit to a gown, it's very touching because she feels awkward. It's like a girl going to her first prom. And, but there's a certain masquerade theme that runs through Lubitsch's work and Wilder, too. And that comes from being in exile. Exiles, by their very nature, have to masquerade in a new culture. They have to speak a different language and learn different mores and wear different clothes. And it's, that's a big theme in both men's work. But so the film leans more toward the capitalist side, which is not surprising. But at the end of the film, Nanashka is in exile. She goes to Istanbul, and there's a funny coda where she and the three commissars start a Russian restaurant in Istanbul, and Leon is there too. And so she's left Russia behind. But her last line in the film in close-up is, no one shall say Nanashka was a bad Russian. So he's not having her demean her country, particularly even though she says things that are that make it sound bad. So... It's a fine balance, and that's a good sign of sophisticated satire, I think. And Lubitsch pulls it off. He said it was his best work as satire in his career. He blended political satire and romantic comedy, which he felt was a difficult thing to do. This marked a huge step for Wilder. Just working with Lubitsch put him in the top-class Hollywood screenwriters, but he received his first Oscar nomination for this film. He and Rackett and Reich... Another thing about Brackett and Wilder, I think that Ninochka is a subtle satire of Charles Brackett by Billy Wilder because she's conservative compared to Leon in some ways, and she's humorless, although Brackett had wit, of course. But it's like a foreign affair where Wilder is mocking the right-wing congresswoman played by Jean Arthur. I think there's similarity between those two characters, and they're both sly parodies of his writing partner. And also, Wilder's first wife, Judith Kapikus Balkan, was conservative. And so he was aware of what it's like to live with a conservative woman. But there's a wonderful story. Let me just read this quote. And Wilder remembered on the way back from the Long Beach preview of Nanachka in a studio limousine with the screenwriters and MGM executives. The director was reading aloud the audience preview cards for Nanachka. And here's Wilder speaking. Very good, brilliant, 20 cards. But when he comes to the 21st card, he starts laughing as hard as I ever saw him laugh. And we say, what is it? He keeps the cards to himself. He does not let anybody even look. Then finally, he calms down a little and starts reading. And what he read was, I have the card. It said, quote, great picture, funniest film I ever saw. I laughed so hard, I peed in my girlfriend's hand. That's a wonderful coda to the whole story of Nanachka. Yeah, there are so many good lines in there. The whole thing about the fewer Russians, but better Russians. Yeah, that's an important comment to, to talk about. That line became somewhat controversial later. But Brackett, in 1952, he was defending the film's political viewpoint during the McCarthy era, and he wrote, this happens to be a line tossed into the script by Ernst Lubitsch, but I sprang to its defense with ardor, as would Billy Wilder. Could a single sentence better compress the inhuman Russian point of view? Could that point of view be held up to ridicule in a healthier way? One of the first things she says when asked about 
conditions in her country. She says, the last mass trials were a great success. There are going to be fewer but better Russians. So people assumed that Billy Wilder wrote that, but he didn't. Lubitsch had a keen political sense, and a lot of people think Lubitsch was apolitical. He didn't take a lot of political stands in his daily life, but one of the critics wrote that this film is part of a trilogy of political films he made during the 30s. He said, Trouble in Paradise is about the crisis of capitalism. And then the two competing solutions to that crisis were communism and Nazism. And he made his comment about communism versus capitalism in Ninochka. And then To Be or Not To Be, he made a film about fascism. And so the film is very political. And Wilder, no doubt, supplied a lot of the political moxie to the story. I'll just give credit to for another writer, the person who actually triggered this project was a Hungarian dramatist named Melchior Lengel. And when Gottfried Reinhardt initiated the project at MGM, he had a three-sentence pitch by Lengel, Russian girl saturated with Bolshevist ideals goes to fearful, capitalistic, monopolistic Paris. She meets romance and has an uproarious good time. Capitalism, not so bad after all. And that is really the tone of the film. That's what it's about. And Langle also supplied the story material for three other major Lubitsch films, Forbidden Paradise in the silent period, which is a marvelous political satire, Angel, which is based on a play that he wrote, and To Be or Not to Be, which was a story that he had originated. So this man, Langle, who was a dramatist and screenwriter, Hungarian, deserves a lot of credit for Lubitsch's work. And Lubitsch was great working with writers. He revered them. And his films are writers' films. Ninochka, as I write in my book, is a writer's film as much as a director's film, but there's nothing wrong with that. And some people mistakenly have thought that the direction is not very accomplished or spectacular, but it's actually very subtle. When you look at the camera work, is full of a lot of subtle dolly shots and moving camera shots, and it's just very non-showy but beautiful, perfect. Truffaut once said, if you could say there's a useless shot in any Lubitsch film, I call you a liar. Nothing in there for purposes of just pure decoration. It's all done for a purpose. Now, I had read that Melchior had written a stage play that this was based on. Is there any truth to that, or was it just the three no, line? You may be thinking of Forbidden Paradise, which is based on a play he wrote called The Tsarina, and Angel, which is based on a play by the, of that name. But this was the pitch that he sold to MGM, just the story idea that he had, but it all starts with the script, and that's the genius of the writer. Yeah, and as far as direction, there are some great visual jokes in the movie. The whole thing of Melvin Douglas taking the elevator to the top of the Eiffel Tower as she starts up the stairs, and that she actually beats him to the top. I love that. Yeah, and the, that's a wonderful setting for a love story, and that was in the script before Rack and Wilder came along, but they was roughed out that they go to the Eiffel Tower. She's going to study it as a feat of great engineering, and, and that's the humor of the thing. She's talking about the mechanical nature, and he's talking about love, and the, they're talking across purposes, and they both find common ground. But what, to give an example of what Lubitsch contributed, Billy Wilder often pointed this out. They, they worked for a long time, he said, weeks, trying to figure out how to dramatize Ninochka being converted from just a really strict communist to somebody who likes luxury and capitalistic trappings. And they were struggling. They couldn't figure it out. 
So he said, Lubitsch one time went to the bathroom there at his house and he came out after a while. And he said, boys, I've got it. It's the hat. And he said, so if you remember in the film, early in the film, when Ninochka goes to the fancy hotel in Paris, there's this silly looking women's hat, sort of a conical hat, looks like a cone head kind of thing in a glass case. And she stops and she says, what's that? And one of the commissar guys who she's with says, that's a hat comrade. That's a woman's hat. And she shakes her head and she says, what kind of a civilization would allow women to put things like that in, on their heads? And she says, it won't be long now, comrades. <laughs> and then there's a second scene later when she's alone walking through the lobby and she just stops and looks at the hat quizzically, but in, in a little more kind of mellow way. And then the culmination is Wilder called it the famous Lubitsch key scene. She goes into her suite at the hotel and she locks the door and she goes down on her knees and in this uh, dresser and she pulls out the hat. She's bought the hat. We never see her buy the hat. That's the kind of Lubitschian ellipsis. And she's sitting there looking at herself. She puts the hat on her head and she looks in a mirror and she looks very silly. And it's funny and sad and and there's a German language interview with Wilder that Volker Schlondorf did a very good interview. And in there, Wilder comments in German, and we know this woman has been, and Schlondorf interjects, besagstigt, which means corrupted or damaged. And Wilder doesn't disagree. And in another interview, he says she's fallen into the trap of capitalism, and we know where we're going from there. And I think that shows a subtle but important difference between Lubitsch and Wilder, that Wilder is fascinated with people being corrupted and the kind of complex process of innocence being corrupted is in some ways a good thing in his view, in some ways a damaging thing. It can go either way, and it's very complex, and that's the subject matter of most of his films, actually. But in this film, he sees her as being corrupted, whereas Lubitsch loves luxury, if you look at his work all the way through. His parents ran a women's tailor shop in Berlin, and he started out being a shop apprentice. And his early films were comical films where he played an inept shop apprentice in these luxury clothing shops. And so his films are very attentive to beautiful costumes, beautiful settings. Paris Paramount to him was a luxurious place that you would love to live in. And so there's this subtle conflict, but that's what this film is about. It's about corruption versus discovery of love and romance. And also important to realize Ninochka is an ideologue and humorless for quite a while, but she's not a prude. She's willing to have sex and she sees sex though as a very natural mechanical function. Divorced from romance is great love scene in the film where she comes to see Melvin Douglas wearing the silly hat and she looks very embarrassed and it's a very sweet scene. And they have this scene where they start kissing and it's beautifully done tender scene, but he's talking about love. And it's ironic that this gigolo is talking about love and romance and she's putting it all in mechanical terms, but he's kissing her and she's getting sexually excited and it's just beautiful. It's just lovely, but it's still, she hasn't loosened up totally. Another great scene is when she laughs for the first time in the film. It's just wonderful where they go to a, a worker's bistro is where she likes to eat lunch. And Melvin Douglas follows her there, and he pretends that he eats there all the time, which is a lie. And But the proprietor comes over and says, oh, great to see a new customer. <laughs> so he shoots down her story. But before that, he's waving to all these rough working guys, and they're, oh, hello. So anyway, 
he's sitting with her as she's just mechanically eating her vegetables. And when she orders, <laughs> I forget if it's beets and carrots or something like that. And the guy has a great line. He says, madam, this is a restaurant, not a meadow. And, but she's eating this stuff. He's trying to desperately make her laugh. So he's telling her some bad jokes and like a kind of corny vaudevillian. And some of them are not funny, and some of them he screws up, and it's just a wonderful scene. And finally, he gets angry that she's not laughing, and he leans back in his chair, and he's scolding her, and the chair slips, and he does a big pratfall, and it shows all these guys laughing at him. And in the script, it says there's a moment where she looks, and then she breaks into laughter. But I think another subtle but beautiful touch is Lubitsch and his editor, Gene Ruggiero, cut when she's in the midst of laughing. There's no pause. She's just roaring with laughter. It's just one of the moments that sort of shrills the soul, as somebody said about the ending of Chaplin City Lights. It's one of the great movie moments. And she's laughing. But the topper, Wilder said, Lubitsch always topped his jokes. Melvin Douglas doesn't think it's funny because he's the butt of the joke. He's on the floor and he has to get up and he's made ridiculous. And so he sits with her and then he finally laughs and then they both roar with laughter. It's a wonderful scene. And from that point on, she's a changed, different person for the better. And he is too. He is too. He learns a lot from her. When was the first time you met Billy Wilder? In 1974, I was a young reporter in Riverside, California. I'd been writing about him since, I guess, 1970 is the first time I wrote about him. Michael Wimich and I were writing for Film Quarterly, and we reviewed The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, which I think is a great late Wilder film. And we defended that from American critics, didn't appreciate it because it was very romantic. When American films became very sexually free and the language loosened up everything, you could do anything almost. Wilder went the opposite direction, counterintuitively. He went into the more romantic direction and people couldn't relate to that. In, in the early 70s, if somebody called you romantic, they were insulting you. This, this is the period of free love and I was supposed to be divorced from romance and Wilder his whole body of work is just the scene I mentioned in Nachka, that sex and romance should not be separated. He's critical of people who try to do that. And so then we reviewed Avanti, and I love Avanti. It's possibly my favorite Wilder film. And that was dismissed in America as an old-fashioned romantic film. It's the most Lubitschian film he ever did. He kept trying to do Lubitsch films and with various, various degrees of success, but Avanti is truly Lubitschian, I believe. But so I went in 1974, he was shooting the front page based on the Ben Heck, Charles MacArthur newspaper play, which I loved. And uh, I wangled a chance to go on the set and watch him shoot for a day, which was wonderful. And I interviewed him and I interviewed I.L. Diamond and Jack Lemon, Walter Matthau, the cameraman, the producer. And it was just terrific. And I've saved my notes. So that I published the interview in Sight and Sound in the Boston Real Paper, but I had a lot more material that I saved and made use of in my book. And then I interviewed him numerous times over the years, and I did a big interview with him with Todd McCarthy in the 1980s for Film Comet over a two-day period. We did a long interview, a lot about his later work. And then I gave him the Career Achievement Award from the Los Angeles Film Critics Association in 1995, which I advocated for. And I sat with him and Jack Lemmon and and gave the speech honoring him. And when he died, I rewrote that for a tribute in the Writers Guild magazine. 
put that on the cover. Thank you, Mr. Wilder, we called it. And but Billy Wilder's widow, Audrey, was so touched by that that by the Writers Guild paying tribute to him, as they well should, that she gave all his scripts to the Writers Guild Library. So I got to know him quite well. He was a wonderful interviewee, former newspaper guy. It's one reason we got along, because old newspaper guys get along. And even when I was 27, I was an old newspaper guy. I've been doing this since 1960. And it's like when I met Samuel Fuller, he and I clicked immediately to talk the same language. And I knew Billy Wilder's work really well, so we had some really good talks over the years. And but anyway, it was really a treat to dig into his life and work. In both the Lubitsch and Wilder books, I wrote them partly because they're fun. And there's nothing more fun than writing a book on Ernst Lubitsch. It's just <laughs> such a pleasure. When I wrote my Frank Capra book, which took seven and a half years, it was a great challenge and very engaging on a craft level, but very sad, very tragic, because his life was a real tragic failure after 45 years of success and 45 years of downhill failure. But Lubitsch was just a joy. And But I wanted to see all these films that have not been seen widely in America until recently, actually. And I'm now working with Kino Lorber doing audio commentaries on a lot of Lubitsch's German silent films. We've been doing, oh, I Don't Want to Be a Man, The Oyster Princess, When I Was Dead, which is unusual black comedy he made in Germany, and some other ones too. And Madame du Barry is coming out eventually. And a lot of these films have not been seen much in America. And I went to Europe twice to see Lubitsch films and wanted to cover his entire body of work. His books before that on Lubitsch, most of them either about his German work or his American work. Most people just knew his American work. And I felt you couldn't understand them fully unless you could encompass both in one book. And I started actually writing, I thought it was a clever idea to write a book on Lubitsch and Wilder together. And so for about a year, I was doing that. And then I realized, first of all, it would be way too long because they both had huge careers, but also they were as different as they were similar. There's strong differences too. And so I put that aside. And when I finished Lubitsch, I went back to Wilder and spent two or three years, whatever it was finishing that book. And that was a real pleasure, too, to see his German films. So I went back to Europe to see some of his films to go around where he came from, and just like I had done with Lubitsch, and also to see a lot of the Hollywood films that were neglected, Wilder's films. So I, I wrote about the whole body of work again. Also his journalism, since I'm a journalist and Wilder, very important part of his life was he was a journalist in both Vienna and Berlin. And when I was doing my book, there were two there are two books on his, of his journalism, one Vienna, one Berlin, both in German. And I read those. They've since, there's an English volume, Noah Eisenberg edited one volume collection of Wilder's European journalism. It's not complete. That's good. So he was a good journalist. Not a super great journalist, but he was good. But a lot of that influenced his work. You can see in embryonic form certain ideas that he will expand into films later on. Some Like It Hot, The Girls' Band, Coming to Town on the Train, stemmed from a group of British girl dancers called the Tiller Girls who came to Berlin, and Billy Wilder had a romance with one of them, and it's very similar in some ways to Some Like It Hot. And you can see a lot of those ideas percolating in his journalism and also his tone, his view of the world, the mordant tone. But I had a wonderful time working in his work because I've just adored his work for a long time. But 
it's an attempt to make people see him in a different way, and I think it's helped to do that. There, there are people who don't like Billy Wilder because they think he's too cynical, and I think, frankly, I think those people are Pollyannas generally. What are they thinking? We live in a pretty harsh world, and Billy Wilder, I think it's Molly Haskell wrote about my book that his work has only grown in stature in, over the years because people realize, first of all, he was so honest and so sharp in his political satire, but also they understand his true nature better, that he was a romantic fighting against succumbing to cynicism and, and despair. And so he, in some ways he's more respected now, but there are pockets of resistance still. So I know you're working on the Kino disc with the Lubitsch films. You're, as we're recording this, you're wrapping up your school year. What else are you working on? Because you are always working on something. Well, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. I had four books out almost simultaneously about a year ago. I, the Billy Wilder book came out from Columbia in October 21. Then I did a book I've been working on off and on for a long time called Political Truth, the Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy. And it's a book I'm very proud of and means a lot to me. And that took about a, oh, maybe a year to finish, but I've been planning it since the 90s. And I've been studying the assassination ever, even before it happened. I wrote a short story about it in 1961 for my high school English class. I was a Kennedy volunteer in the 1960 campaign and recognized meeting him up close that he was very vulnerable. And I was a student of the Lincoln assassination. So I wrote a short story about his assassination. And so I've been studying it ever since then. We've been lied to by the media. And that's what that book is about, political truth. It's about how the mainstream media have perpetuated a myth of this lone gunman with no motive killing Kennedy. I had written an earlier book called Into the Nightmare, My Search for the Killers of President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett. So that's actually my main interest in life is the Kennedy assassination. Whether I'll do another book on that subject, I don't know, but I keep researching it. And then I also, in that period around 21, 22, I had a new edition in my book, Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, A Portrait of an Independent Career. I added a section on two Wells films that had come to light since the book was first published. The Other Side of the Wind is Testament film on Hollywood, which I'm in as an actor, and I helped complete it. I was one of the consultants on the completion. And also Too Much Johnson, his early film that miraculously was rediscovered in a warehouse in Italy, a pre-Citizen Kane film that he did. And then I did a little book on the Coen brothers, called The Whole Dern Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen Brothers. So I was working like a demon, getting four books out in one time, and I thought I'd take a little break after that and regroup and try to think of what I'd like to do next. I think you deserve a little bit of a break after that. Yeah, that was a bit much. I mean, I like to work hard and, and I'm efficient, but uh, when you're doing four at the same time, it's like the work overlaps sometimes. Which book am I working on tonight? I've got to do this and I've got to do this. So many tasks involved. Actually, there is a book that is in the works that I've been working on since then. My John Ford critical study that I wrote with Michael Wellington in 1974, but actually we wrote it in 69 to 71, and we sold it to the British Film Institute Cinema 2 series. They had a very good two series of film books back then. and But it didn't come out till 74 because the British publisher, Secker and Werber, claimed they couldn't find an American publisher. That's how low Ford's status was at the time. Although that was not in the contract, so I get the book out. So it came out in 74, and we put a lot of love 
and blood into that book. And it was reprinted later and then it went out of print. And so I had this desire to get the book back into print. And my colleague, Mike Wilmington, died in 2022, unfortunately. He had quite a good career. He was a critic for the Chicago Tribune for quite a while. And he also wrote for the Los Angeles Times. Taught me a lot about films and acting in particular. He was a terrific actor, and I directed him on stage in the Zoo Story twice in Wisconsin, where we came from. And so we, back then, I thought, John Ford is such a big subject, I need a collaborator to help write this book. So we did that together. And so I've updated that for the University Press of Kentucky, which I've published books with before on Wells and Hawks. And I've added a long, ambitious section on Ford silent films because we now have 27 Ford silent films in whole or in part. And back when we did our book, there were only about 12 known to exist. And we wrote about one in detail, straight shooting as first feature. But there are enough in existence now, although a lot are lost, that I, I could provide an overview as creative development and with the help of other sources and also having read some of the scripts of this of his silent films at, in his papers in Indiana, for example, and, and all the research I did for my biography, Searching for John Ford. And then I did essays on three controversial topics about Ford. One is about Ford's view of race. Another is Ford and Irishness. And a third is about Ford's use of comedy. And people who don't like Ford often say, I don't like his comedy. I don't like the slapstick fighting and brawling, et cetera. So I, but I think the comedy is very integral to his work. The tragedy and comedy mixture is so characteristic of John Ford and his view of the world that I advocate for that point of view. And I put that piece into the book too. So it's got a lot of new material, a lot of new photographs and frame enlargements. That'll be out in December. Professor McBride, thank you so much for your time. I always appreciate talking with you. Well, it's great to talk to you, Mike. It's, uh, you know, so much, and it's always a pleasure to take your questions and hear your thoughts and but they stimulate so many things in my mind. So thank you very much. We are back and we are talking about Ninochka. And like I say almost every episode, any good film deserves a remake. Depends on how good or bad the remake is. Now, there were at least three remakes of this one for TV in 1960 in the US, and I cannot find hiding or hair of that. One in 1965, which was made for West German TV. And I'm guessing that plays more with the whole East-West divide. I mean, here we are in West Germany in 1965. I'm, seems like it would be pretty obvious target there. There's 10 minutes available on YouTube that you can watch. No subtitles. And you can buy the, I think it's PAL VHS of that on some Polish uh, auction sites. But I didn't do that because my worldwide VCR is not readily available to me anymore. The one remake that you can find very readily is the musical Silk Stockings, which stars 
Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse, sorry, Sid Charisse, basically as Leon and Nochka. But man, oh man, do they they change it radically? But at the same time, there are exact moments that are one hundred percent from Ninochka into Silk Stockings, and sometimes they'll even take a joke and they'll replay it in a different way. There's the joke of Melvin Douglas taking the elevator to the top of the Eiffel Tower while Ninochka is walking up the stairs, and she manages to get to the top before him. Same thing happens in this when. She comes to the hotel where the three emissaries are, and she's got her luggage, and she starts walking up the stairs, and they're like, oh, you can take the elevator. She's like, no need, comrade. And then, of course, she beats them up to the top. She's faster than the elevator. I was very happy to see Peter Lorre in Silk Stockings, but he doesn't get a whole lot of stuff to do. This was kind of that latter-day kind of chunky Peter Lorre. didn't have the the... The presence that he did before, I mean, this is prior to his work in those Roger Corman films, which I love, but yeah, he just didn't have a whole lot of stuff going on. And then I gotta say, Fred Astaire just didn't have the same vim and vigor as Melvin Douglas. I really like Douglas a little bit more as far as the performance. I think the performances are, is what really gets me with Ninochka compared to Silk Stockings. The Silk Sockings, I haven't seen it in quite a while. I watched some clips online on YouTube, but isn't there a line in the Nochka where they mention Silk Stockings? Because then that's, that scene is replaced in Silk Stockings is basically, it's the hat scene. Where you see the Nochka trying on the hat in, in Silk Stockings, you see Sid Cherise trying on the Silk Stocking, and of course she. She does a dance to this, which is essentially a strip tease, which quite erotic. And basically, in that day and age, for me, anything Sid Charisse did was erotic because she was a gorgeous woman and she incredible dancer. And she, I mean, you know, if you for anyone who is not quite sure of who Sid Charisse is, if you've seen Singing in the Rain, she plays in that fantasy scene that Gene Kelly has about, you know, gotta dance. She plays the gun mall, the gangster's mall, in that long extended ballet. She was a gorgeous woman and an incredible, incredibly disciplined dancer. But that scene I did watch, that scene in Silk Stocking, where she's trying on the stocking, that's probably the most memorable scene of the whole film, I would guess. I, like, I didn't know there was a remake in or three remakes until you mentioned it yesterday, Mike. So uh, I didn't get a chance to see them, but I took it from your lack of enthusiasm <laughs> when we were talking through email that maybe they weren't the best. But I'm intrigued by this sistery striptease. So maybe I will. <laughs> it's like if there's something titillating. I mean, it's by no means is it a bad movie. And it was based on a musical that was playing Cole Porter wrote the song. So, you know, decent songs, not as good as the stuff that he would write when he was trapped under a horse or anything, but still some pretty decent songs. I like that they have the pre Paris sequence with here's George Tobias's back. He was the one that was refusing a visa to Melvin Douglas. In this one, he is basically playing the Bella Lugosi type character He's the one that sends Sid Charisse to Paris to, to help out these three guys. The whole thing with the jewels is gone. It's basically 
there's a composer that he wants to bring back to Russia, and the composer doesn't necessarily want to flee the country. He just kind of enjoys the freedom of of Paris. He's not like super anti-communist or anything, and he eventually gets sent back, and we play out somewhat of the same thing with the whole idea of the guys going to another country, and they open up a restaurant, but this one is a a place with a uh, dinner theater. So we've got Fred Astaire up on the stage when she comes in and realizes, oh, it's Steve is here. It's not Leon anymore. It's Steve is is <laughs> in this one. I think this is one of the last movies that Fred Astaire danced in. He went to do more serious stuff after that, but he still had the moves. And the woman that plays kind of the Swana character, because there is the other woman in here, Janice Page. She's pretty amazing. She, and talk about great looks as well. I mean, she's no Sid Charisse, but she, you know, is nothing to kick out of bed either. My goodness. Okay, I'm sold on seeing this. I'll tell you just how incredible Janice Page is. She is still alive at the age of 101. Yeah, she turned one. I think she turned 101 this fall. I think she turned 100 last September or something. Yeah, she's had quite a career. There's a great song in here where she's talking about how things don't matter in the movies anymore because they've got widescreen and stereophonic song and sound and it becomes this big song and dance between her and Fred Astaire. That's a real standout for me. That and when they go back to Russia, there's a song called The Red Blues. And that one really swings as well. And there's some really good choreography in that that, uh, sequence. I've mentioned Queen Christina twice. That being one of the few Garbo movies that I saw. That was directed by Ruben Mamoulian, who also directed Silk Stockings. Talk about a small world, right? Yeah, really. He must have been an MGM director for life. There's some interesting things in here. Like uh, what makes the composer really mad is that they take one of his songs and they basically turn it into almost like a rock and roll number. The music that he's providing is for a film about Napoleon and Janice Page is playing Josephine and she's singing this song about being Josephine. And that really makes the composer mad because it's like a real hip number. But then when he gets to Russia, he basically brings rock and roll back with him. And that's when the Red Blues starts up is when he's doing that in their apartment. And they have that same neighbor who walks through and everything has to stop when the neighbor comes through. It's very, very, very cartoonish when that happens in a great way. I've seen that movie before, but I haven't seen it in many years. So I'll have to go and try to find it again. Yeah, it's not as easy to find as you would think, but it's definitely a lot easier than finding the uh, 65 West German version or the 60 TV version. Uh, though I did find a copy of the 1973 movie called Even Nanochka Takes Off Her Panties, which was uh, an adult film. I was very surprised when my search for that movie took me right over to X Hamster. I was like, oh, okay. And that was a... Russian dub of the film. So as the credits are going, you can hear the Russian narrator reading that because the Russians don't tend to subtitle as much as they tend to dub. So as soon as people started talking, I'm hearing, I think I was hearing German, but I was also hearing Russian over it. So it was very, 
Very odd, that one. That sounds like a winner right there. A man is mistaken as a pimp because he's going around with three women, and people think that they're his his stable. No subtitles for that one either that I could find, so believe me, I've tried to find them. It doesn't sound like it needs subtitles. It's got a great poster, I'll tell you that too. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. This little mommy had five kids. This little mommy couldn't have none. So her ex-con husband just borrowed one. And the fun has just begun. I've been taking these huggies and whatever cash you got. Hold on, Mason. We're going to go pick up Daddy. Racing Arizona. Rated PG-13. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Raising Arizona. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Otto and Robert. So, Otto, what has been keeping you busy lately, sir? I'm just working on a new book, which will be based on a film personality of note. And I told you, Mike, but I'm still not telling anyone else. There are many other talented people who have written about Lubitsch. No, I'm really bad at still doing the radio show and actually teaching quite a bit. Teaching courses coming up on uh, Bogart and the Twilight Zone. Yeah, stuff like that. So as, as a matter of fact, I am doing a, a class showing and discussion of Ninochka at the end of this month. So I'll be taking, I'll be stealing all of your guys' insight and be spouting it back to my class. Well, I'm glad that we could help. Don't put this out until next month. Then. And Robert, how about you? Well, I got my YouTube channel keeping me busy, which is as similar as to Mike, where we, with guests, review films and really explore how the storytellers sto- told the stories as opposed to just reviewing it. But we really go deep into our reviews. And I also interview people who work in film, television, theater, among other areas of the art. So I do about four to six episodes per month that you can go to youtube.com slash Robert Bellissimo at the movies to check it out. Give me a please subscribe as, as well if you can. And I'm also I'm an actor and I teach acting. So I teach virtually still in the somewhat post pandemic world still online. So if you're looking for a class, you can go to rbellissimo.ca. And my social media handles, Twitter is at RB at the movies and Instagram is at Robert Bellissimo at the movies as well as Facebook. And for my acting class, it is at actor underscore teacher on Instagram. Oh, Mike, I should have mentioned the Barney Miller book that you can still get at Bear Manor Media. One of the best books I have in my collection. And I think you know a little bit about Barney Miller yourself, Mike. I'm learning. I won't ever know as much as you do, but I'm trying to learn. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They're all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. We got the red blues. 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 We got the red, red, red. That's what we said. Red blues. We got the red blues.